My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most, because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that I give them in a frequency being played it, they may have been a healing center as well and one of the things you find with the star forts is you know you'll you'll see the pattern above ground but what most people don't understand is that more than 50 percent of the star fort is usually subterranean if you look at a city you know an overview of a city these days it looks an awful lot like a motherboard to a computer although it may not be the same way it was before i think functionally the architecture still acts in the same manner it still has that property where it needs you know obviously needs the human in it too now for the battery i think there is something to that there is some energetic basis to the way that cities are laid out and and even to this day i i think it's still they have some sort of function with the way energy is harnessed or drawn or used in those city areas based on the landscape that's the million dollar question why isn't it in the history books and why do we have CIA documents saying that there was an effort to erase Tartaria from the history books. I mean, that's in writing in CIA documents. So there is, again, if we want to get back to the term conspiracy, there is a conspiracy right there. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. I'm your host, Mark Palmer. And on today's show, we have the man behind the Great Deception podcast. And I got to say, if you're not following Matt on Instagram already, please go ahead and do yourself a favor and do that right now. The guy is constantly posting very, very informational stuff. I mean, pictures, descriptions. I can't compete. It's awesome. I learn a lot of stuff from Matt weekly. From the cool stuff he's posting on his Instagram and his podcast, the Great Deception Podcast. You ought to check that out too. And of course, today's conversation was great. We got into the World's Fair. We talked a little bit about the origins of man and civilization and all the stuff you've come to know and expect here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. And not just that, we talked about Star Forts so much more great conversation with matt please go subscribe show him love at the great deception podcast and if you're 
loving the show, we got a Patreon. Show us some love there and figure out all the ways to support the show at MyFamilyThinksI'mCrazy.com. Thank you so much to everybody who's with me in 2022. A lot of love from me to you and everyone who's a part of Alt Media United. Thank you so much for being here and enjoy this conversation with Matt. Oh, and stick around for the extended outro with my buddy Ron from New England, host of the Wicked Planet podcast. There's tons of ways to support the show. We have a new t-shirt shop and I am working on a bunch of different designs. There's a couple cool ones on there. There's a couple not so cool ones that I'll admit I made that uh, I threw up there. If you're interested, check them out. There's a lot of uh, potential with our merch store. I'll say that. So go there, check it out. Let me know what you think. And if you're an artist yourself, feel free to come forward. Uh, I'd love to hear some ideas for possible shirts for the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. I definitely have been in touch with a couple of really cool artists lately, so we'll see what happens. Uh, But feel free. The doors are still open. Hit me up if you're interested in possibly making some art for the show. I'd be, uh, you know, obviously happy to pay you for your services. Uh, And if you're willing to do it for free, uh, possibly as a way to support the show, that would be really, really awesome. And uh, we'd be sure to give you a shout out and recommend you to friends because I know I'm not the only podcaster who's in need of this kind of thing. So thank you so much to all our supporters. If you like that kind of stuff, uh, we also have some artwork for sale, some jewelry that I made myself, some paintings that my girlfriend Tara painted herself so go over to our website myfamilythinksimcrazy.com to check out all the ways to support the show and stay in touch we also have some really awesome supporters some sponsors shout out to all the folks supporting us on patreon and most importantly shout out to our sponsors audrey lobdell hit her up for all your reiki and tuning fork needs we also have our friends at Akasha Goods for some holistic healing resources. You can get candles, you can get essential oils. Speaking of essential oils, one of our patrons and friends, One Thumb L, has some really awesome crystal infused essential oils. And then finally, through the Forest Bathing Service, if you're interested in checking out how to bathe in the forest, hit up through. All of these links are in the description. Shout out to our friend Yogi Zorananda. I listened to his recent, uh, maybe not so recent conversation on the Grimerica show Outlawed. Very cool stuff. Shout out to the Yogi. Go support his podcast, Renegade Yogi Podcast Experience. The link is also in the description. All of that is there. And of course, much love to Matt for joining me on today's episode follow him at the great deception podcast and finally ron from new england with the wicked planet podcast so much to do but i'm sure you got time to listen to these awesome podcasts as well as recommend mine to a friend that's right the show is growing so recommend the show to a friend Uh, the best way to do that is instagram follow us on instagram and share the show with your friends you share us in your story i'll shout you out on the show so thank you so much folks for listening to 
and my family think some crazy podcast and enjoy this conversation with Matt and Ron from New England separately of course but Matt first then Ron Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the My Family Thinks Some Crazy podcast. I'm your host, Mark, and with me today is a gentleman who I know in, a, in an odd way. I remember the first time he got in contact with me, it was through a, an Instagram message, and he said, hey, man, I know your cousin. I'm like, well, that's odd because, you know, she's, you know, 15-something years older than me, so this must have happened when I was really young. And as a matter of fact, this guy knew me, slightly some in some respect when i was a young and he signed up for the patreon and i don't know if you had a podcast back then but since you started your own podcast which is really fucking cool your podcast is hitting the charts the great deception podcasts off and running i think you got uh close to 20 episodes now so if you haven't heard today's guest please go over in the episode description subscribe to his podcast follow him check out his work Matt, how are you, brother? Great, Mark. Thanks for having me, man. Yeah, and I, yeah. It was, it, it's funny how it's a small world because I heard you on on Sam's podcast when you were doing the Alistair Crowley episode, mm. and I heard your name, and I'm like, man, there cannot be that many Mark Steves out there. And so I yeah, I reached out to you, and I was like, man, it's such a small world. <laughs> it's so synchronous, and I remember being, you know, that was so fresh. And like, you know, I never come close to anything like that in my life, you know, going on tinfoil hat and all of a sudden a hundred thousand people hear my voice and hear me talking about a subject that I'm not even really that attached to. Like I like Aleister Crowley's work, but I'm not like, I'm not going to go and write a book about him. But at the yeah. same time, it really didn't feel like anybody had given him a proper shake on that show. So I went out and did that. And, you know, I got a lot of messages from that show, which is why I was a little apprehensive to all of them. But your message kind of broke through because it was one of the few from someone who I had actually already met, you know, a long time ago. Maybe I didn't quite remember you, but but yeah, it's it's so cool, man, the way things synchronistically work themselves out. But we've talked about that before. I think it's uh, another indication that I'm on the right track, you're on the right track, that these little sinks happen, and, and in hindsight too, you know. But what, you know, I guess I want to take it back to that point. Like, would my family think you're crazy <laughs> back then? Like, were you into conspiracy theories and all this stuff back then, or is this relatively uh, new for you? Like, how long have you been into this stuff, Matt? No, I, I wasn't back then. I mean, this was high school, so we're going back mm. 25 years now. So right. <laughs> uh, I wasn't really into conspiracy theories. I was always into history, though. You know, in high school, I took all my alternate classes for history classes. I was always fascinated by history and the different stories. And, you know, I could never really understand why we always only got the Western side of history. And that always kind of sat with me wrong. So when I went to college, I, I dug into it a little bit more. And and in there, you get into a whole different element. Now you're dealing with, you know, education system and the indoctrination. And, you know, I, I, I headbutted with it with a few professors because I started researching things that didn't add up. 
And so it was probably in like the early 2000s that I, f- I started really realizing that something wasn't right. Then 9-11 happens and I was like everybody else, you know, at the time for the most part. And I was all red, white and blue, you know, let's pay, make these people pay for whoever did this. And then all of a sudden someone showed me loose change and things really changed from there where I started seeing connections being made of things that weren't being told in the public, but were obviously taking place behind the scenes. And, and so from there, basically it's been a, a, you know, a slow journey here and there. I got big into Graham Hancock and Randall Carlson and, and their old studies of the historical timeline, which led me into guys like Matthew LaCroix and his great work on, on the timeline. And so when I started realizing that, that's when things started really clicking for me that, hey, man, if, they're, if we don't even know what the timeline is and we're, we're being told that it's one thing when there's evidence that it, it's totally different, what else are they lying about? Right. And then, you know, that's when the floodgates open. When that happens, uh, things get really. And then the final straw was in 2016. I came down with an autoimmune issue and got into the medical system. And, you know, I get into it. And and my first meeting with my doctor was one of those where we sit down and he's like, okay, what's bothering you? And I just tell him. And then he writes me a prescription. And he says, you know, come back in about a month and we'll see how this is going. Mm. You know, no mention of, of any of anything that would really help me like lifestyle diet and things like that, that I had been kind of research to, you know, to try and help the condition and see if there were ways outside of the medical system. And I, I got bogged down and into pharmaceuticals for about two years, my condition worsened, I was having, you know, suicidal thoughts at times I was having, you know, uh, nightmares that were unmatched, you know, I, I bloody, gory nightmares. And so I just cold turkey cut off the pharmaceuticals and started going into alternative methods of healing and things like that. And that's when I realized that, you know, if, if the medical system isn't meant to heal us, then this whole system is broken because what I found was that when I would bring ideas to my doctor about things that might work that weren't, you know, part of the pharmaceutical industry, they were shot down immediately and kind of poo-pooed. And, and that's when, and, and then, so I started trying some of it and it started working and I exit stage, right. I'm done with the medical system. You know, I got out and that's where I started diving into all the other connections, political connections, you know, Mm. money ties, pharmaceuticals, and then it gets into the history. And, and, and it got really interesting probably about two years ago when, uh, I first heard of, of Tartaria and old world, and started really going backwards. And I got introduced to that by Howdy McCoskey and and his book, Exposing the Expositions. And because I had never heard of it, I heard him on a podcast. um, And so I bought his book and I started reading through it. And man, I don't know what it was, but it was like all these bells started going off because this was something that just caught my attention. And since then, I've been, you know, diving deep into that and and many other subjects, but I really right now I'm interested in kind of the timeline of and and how we got where we are now because obviously there's been some major 
shifts and major almost you could call them resets over time and we you know i don't know how many i don't know when they happened but that's kind of what i'm looking into right now and uh, and and when you start digging into that it ties in with so many other things you know you start getting into secret societies and you start getting into you know behind the scenes governments and things that are going on and and these different groups and man it's a wild world out there that's all i have to say yeah and i mean i'm glad we're just starting here because we're gonna get into this wild world and you mentioned howdy mikowski he is definitely someone I'm hoping to have on the show. I think we we just emailed back and forth, so fingers crossed that'll happen soon. But Howdy, really fascinating character, had a really uh, interesting near-death experience, and that kind of sent him into opening his eyes to this other world that's out there. I mean, very similar to your story on a on a minute level with the pharmaceuticals. You know, you're you're having these nightmares i mean that sounds just scary man i do not want to you know i'm lucky that a lot of my dreams are in a fog from all the pot i smoke because you know with the subject matter i research i might have some pretty bad nightmares i don't want to know but yeah i i mean i just took this stuff today a homeopathic medicine i had the ugliest oh most awful pimple on my lip man and it was like the size of a ladybug and for the past three podcasts, I was podcasting like this so nobody would see it. And I took this stuff from Whole Foods and the the thing like turned into a rock and fell off my lip. I mean, I've never seen uh, medicine this fast acting. And I looked up, you know, what I had bought because, you know, they had the Latinized name. It was like sulfurous calciaria. And I looked that up and it's gypsum. And I, I literally I took a, a mineral gypsum. And whatever my body did, it was like filling that, you know, pimple up with gypsum until it turned into this solid, you know, calcified thing that just fell right off. And I was like, wow, where was this when I was in high school? Because I had a lot of acne in high school that I wish I would have taken care of if I didn't go to the freaking doctor's office. That I remember they took me to the dermatologist. That's where they took me. And they gave me the proactive, you know, prescription. And it only made my skin 10 times more irritated. So I had oh, a very similar and all that yeah, stuff. Yeah. I had a very similar disillusionment. Like and and cannabis was a huge, I think, stress reliever in my life at that point in time, which contributed to my skin clearing and eventually now that's not an issue up until that one like little lip blemish there. But yeah, I was so fascinated how quick the gypsum worked. I'm like, wow, like this is, you know, this is unprecedented. And it goes to show because gypsum, I think, is it's a type of selenite or selenite is a type of gypsum either way. And the other you know, form of selenite that we can take into our body is selenium, which is a, a foundational mineral, you know, and it seems like more and more they're pushing us out of a symbiotic relationship with our environment. And if we had one, we would have minerals, we would have plants, we would have animal fats, we would have all of these things in a balance contributing to our health. I mean, I don't know if this is your forte, but are you, are you, you know, conscious, a conscious eater? Do you go out of your way to, to eat healthy now that you've realized, you know, what the pharmaceutical industry really has in store? Yeah, it definitely changed the way I looked at it. I mean, I was a food pyramid guy. 
You know, I, I trusted the, the, the old food pyramid up until this point. And then I realized, man, it's inverted. They did everything backwards. All the stuff that they push to you is what's going to cause you to be sick. So, yeah, no, I have definitely uh, been much more conscious of my diet, of what I intake. You know, I, I cut out soda, any of the sugary drinks, you know, immediately when I found this out, because, you know, one of the things I didn't realize, and, you know, obviously, it's stupid on my part was how inflammatory sugar is, and and how sugar is in just about everything. And, and especially nowadays, when they use the high fructose corn, corn syrup, which is just terrible for your body. I mean, between that and all the, the different oils that they use between soy and canola and things like that, that are just, they're wreaking havoc on your body and slowly breaking down your body. And what they don't tell you is what you should do, right? I mean, if we look at this pandemic, out of, out of all the information we've gotten out of this, I don't think I've ever heard one person preach you know, healthy living, get out in the sun, get your vitamins, you know, drink purified water, all this stuff. It's just, nope, go get a shot, go get, you know, go get the quick fix from daddy pharmacy. And, and that's very disturbing because there's many people that have bought into it and many people that will suffer the consequences of it unknowingly because they blindly trust authority. And, and that's, that, that's a very slippery slope these days because those who we are supposed to trust are, do not always have our best interests in mind. Right. And, and to your point about, you know, history going back and, and finding, you know, where this started, I think diet and food, we really, could use some of that research in that area because you know bread for example seems to be sort of an invention of this empire that you know i think we'll get into here but you know with this timeline that we're given for human history you know 200,000 BC that's 200,000 before the 2000 year mark that they started us off at you know 2000 or so years ago if that's not confusing enough folks We'll try to just, you know, take the math work out of there and say 200 and 2,000 years ago, the theory is that Homo sapiens were appearing in Africa. So there was all these different types of hominids and they would crossbreed and whatnot. And, and Homo sapiens began to reign supreme around this time. But when we re-examine, you know, you mentioned Graham Hancock, Randall Carlson, when we re-examine our own geological records and we find that there are these reset events like the younger driest period that really, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't quite add up that, you know, this timeline we're given of human history, you know, it seems very limit linear, but I think in reality it was much more broken up then we're told, you know, we're, we're given this false idea of progress. Like we started here as cavemen and then we slowly made our way up to Babylon, then to Egypt, then to Rome, then it all fell. Then we rebuilt it again. And it just feels like that. That's just too convenient of a narrative. Oh, for sure. Yeah. It, it just, it seems like they just, there was a story and then they just pressed replay. Mm. on it 
and, and, and stuck it into a certain period of time. And, and one of the things that I've, you know, I haven't dug deep into it yet, but some of the work of Anatoly Fomenko right. and some of the things that he says, and he's a mathematician, so he's not coming at this, you know, as a historian trying to disprove his history. He's coming at this from a, a statistical standpoint and looking at the numbers. And one of the patterns that he sees, especially in the Roman Empire, is them recycling characters and eras and just giving them a different name. I mean, he goes to the to the extent to map out, uh, I believe it's almost 30 rulers in a row. And he maps them out in the early first century. And then they tie out into the, I believe it's the fifth century Roman rulers, where say in, in year one through 14, you know, Claudius was ruling. Well, if you go to the year 400 on that side, they would have Claudio who was ruling for 14 years. Then you go down to the next ruler and, and in, in the first century, if there was a triumvirate, well, in the fifth century, there just so happened to be a triumvirate also, you know, that all of the duration of their reign is very similar. The names are eerily similar, if not the same in some instances. And like I said, in, in the number of rulers. So, you know, Rome is known for having these triumvirates where they had three rulers at a time. And this would be shown in two different eras. And it just, he says from a statistical standpoint, it's not possible for this to happen. But that's the story that we're told from the Roman standpoint. Yeah. Yeah, it it seems like there's a sort of like a copy pasting that goes on like they, you know, a couple hundred years goes by and they copy paste it to fill in that blank spot or, you know, more wild speculation that came to mind as you were laying that out is what if the occultists are right? There's some secret of uh, immortality that these elites, these royals have, and they actually are living longer lifespans than we're traditionally led to believe so they obfuscate it with these records and say oh no that's the son of octavius that's not octavius meanwhile you know this guy could have you know lived behind closed doors for a couple hundred years Uh, extremely speculative but this is the nature of history we really can't do anything but speculate based on the evidence that's left behind and and stone structures seem to be some of the most permanent evidence that can be left behind, which is why the whole Tartaria subject is extremely fascinating to me because why would, in theory, the conquerors want to, I mean, let's say you're conquering a foreign nation, right? You've just traveled hundreds, maybe thousands of miles to go to this foreign land. You, you, win this battle half of your army is conceivably you know they perished in the battle and then you go and you destroy the everything you know if you want to take over this foreign country why would you destroy things why wouldn't you just take them over why wouldn't you just you know repurpose what's already there it just seems like an incredible waste of of time and energy to destroy a whole city and then you know rebuild it it seems more likely that these what we're calling, you know, Tartarian possibly buildings, you know, 
were repurposed. They were taken from the predecessor, the losing party in whatever war that's been rewritten out of our history and replaced, right? I think that's the case with a lot of these Tartarian structures because as we're putting it, you know, this this type of stuff lasts much longer than, than anything else on the planet, stone. Yeah, and we see it a lot with cathedrals as well. Mm. That's one of the ones where it seems like that any any large scale building, you know, was automatically deemed a a cathedral. And and when you start looking at these, especially the the structural layout of these buildings, they're not just you know brick and mortar buildings. These were intricately designed they were designed using you know the golden ratio you see a lot of the flower of life in these buildings you see lots of geometric shapes and patterns that you know they're not it's not just typical masonry that that we're seeing here in these buildings and especially for the time like you're saying if you're going to come in and take over a nation or, or a country why would you go in, take them over, destroy all the infrastructure, and then have to rebuild it in a time when supposedly, you know, materials aren't at the your beck and call? You have to pr- produce all of this stuff. And we're talking about a time pre-power, you know, or right. that we're so we're told there's no power tools, there's no tools of in. We're talking horse and carriage, we're talking um Oxen cart levies. Yeah, levies (laughs) and pulleys. And and you look, I mean, just looking at stones like Gobekli Tepe, that doesn't make any sense. How are you moving stones like that? And and how are they building these buildings? And some of them are in places that seem very uninhabitable. Right. You know, we're talking mountaintops and cliffs and 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 things like that. And again, at a time when the technology wasn't there to make it easy. So it's almost as if they had abundant resources, infinite resources at the time to be able to create these buildings. And then the next, uh, you know, layer comes in and they, they want to just destroy. And, and it, it raises a lot of questions, you know, along the lines of were these buildings some sort of structure, earth structure? Right, some part of some larger energy grid that ties in with things like ley lines and 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 other points on the Earth that have energetic powers, and and that's what fascinates me the most about this. And as we look at it over and over, one of the things that you see, at least in modern history, is that war is basically you know not centered around, but one of the main things that you see coming out of all the wars is the massive destruction of the infrastructure, right. the old buildings, right, and, and things like right. that. And it makes you wonder why. You know, you look at the. It's almost like they in the 1800s we were able to see what the old world was like, and that was the last glimpse of it. And then they showed it to you and said, okay, here's what you had, but here's what we're going to give you. And that's the new industrial revolution side of things, right? the new modern way of living that is, like you mentioned before, about us being in tune with nature and, and, and being one with it rather than just consuming. And that's where we are today. We're, we are in the era of, of consuming. And, and the, that respect for nature has decreased in so many people and we've lost that connection. I mean, how many people go out of their house in, in bare feet anymore and go ground for a couple minutes a day? You know, you don't see that kind of stuff anymore. 
Right. Yeah, I, uh, I'm i not going to sit on a high horse and say I do it all the time, but every now and then I try to ground, and, and it definitely makes me feel more sane than when I'm just sitting in front of a computer all day like I normally do. So I recommend it for sure. Not a doctor, but I think what's so fascinating when it comes to the Tartaria subject as a whole is what seems to be a harmony or a resonance with the natural forces rather than, as you put it, what seems to be the case post world fair, which is like this, you know, top down, you know, we're in control of nature. Nature is ours. We uh, control nature and we're just going to use it for whatever we can get out of it. Whereas it seemed like in the past, the philosophy was more so, if we take care of nature, nature will take care of us, you know, and slowly but surely the empire, you know, spread its tentacles across the earth. And this time we're in now, seemingly there's no respect for the earth. There's no harmony. And, you know, Roman, who I know you've spoke with from the Rising from the Ashes podcast, he was just on the show and he was breaking down some strange things he found in royal chambers where they would have a crown and a scepter and a globe and possibly all of these things were components in a type of energy device. Uh, And I've heard you describe on your episode 13 of the Great Deception podcast on Star Forts, I heard you describe them also as batteries, right? This kind of word magic, but more technically speaking, a battery is also... um, another word for a star fort, but it's also a storage place of energy, right? Very curious that there's this sort of double entendre or double meaning there. But back to my point about nature, it seems like there is or was an energy field that buildings like cathedrals are tapping into. Have you found anything similar to that to corroborate that? Yeah, I've I've looked into it uh, a little bit, and and actually, I just finished reading a book called The Sacred Network, which looks into the ley lines in France and how a lot of the architecture in France is built along these ley lines, and it does seem that there was some sort of energetic grid that they were working off with these buildings. And then, like you mentioned, uh, you look at things like star forts. Now, I know the traditional. Uh, explanation of star forts is that they were defensive structures built, you know, to not only control the the sea and defend, be a first line of defense from any sort of waterbound attack, but they also were outposts and things like that. But then when you start looking at it and, you know, you start asking questions as to, well, if I look at this, why would we design these intricate patterns if it was just for defensive purposes? Why would we go through all this work if it's just a defensive structure? There were gardens, you know, immaculate gardens and areas that they would, fields that they would manage around these star forts that almost, it almost seems like they were interacting. And, and anyone that's familiar with cymatics, which is, is the study of vibration and frequency, will know that there are these cymatic patterns that water will tend to take depending on the vibration that is is put on it. And some of these patterns seem to have healing 
abilities, natural abilities, and we get into thinking about, okay, well, maybe these star forts had some sort of ability to manipulate the water, or the water was a tool of these star forts and could be used to not only energize the fort itself, the, you know, the landscape around it, but also bring healing to the people that are in that Mm. area. You know, whether they consume the water itself or they're in that general area with that cymatic frequency being played, they may have been a healing center as well. And one of the things you find with the star forts is, you know, you'll you'll see the pattern above ground, but what most people don't understand is that more than 50% of the star fort is usually subterranean. It's usually underground. So there's this multi-layer component to it as well that you know i think needs to be looked into i think just the narrative of being told that these were just defensive positions and you know they were just for war i I find that very hard to believe being of the the sheer vast number of star forts and the fact that you find them across the globe absolutely yeah i mean i can think of one that's not too far away from me it's i think it's called the nathan hale fort nathan hale it's like run by the national guard now but allegedly, there is a star fort in New Haven Harbor in Connecticut on the east sort of shore of the New Haven Harbor. And with that, you know, point you just pointed out, 80 to 50% of these structures are underground, meaning 50% of the building itself, not 50% of the star forts in a list. But yeah, I think that's very telling because look at where all of these military bases end up they always are going underground we hear stories about underground tunnels under most cities with a university that was built in the 1800s it just feels like that was a lot more customary of a practice than we're led to believe you know you look at like a mcdonald's on a corner and you don't necessarily think that there's an underground component to that and there might not be i'm not suggesting there is but in the 1800s something like an underground tunnel would have been very advantageous for like a university because you know it snows you can't you can't move the same way you could in a big bad snowstorm they didn't have plows back then they just had shovels so you know it might have been a, a technological weather workaround but i think that's just a a clever little excuse that they give us. Oh yeah. They built all these underground tunnels. So the students would be able to go to class in the winter and no, no one would get wet. And it's like, really? Cause I, I, you know, I've heard stories of my grandfather who had to walk, you know, two, three miles to public school through the snow over Hills. So, you know, they weren't doing that for everybody, but it definitely, it definitely is surprising to find how just how many the sheer number of underground structures there are in this country. Oh, the tunnels and everything, yeah. And and one more thing on before we go too far from Star Forts, I'm not sure if everybody knows, but the Statue of Liberty is actually placed on a Star Fort. Yeah. So if you don't think there's any significance to Star Forts, we know that when they put their symbols in certain spots, it's for a reason. So I got to give a a shout out. I got to give a shout out to my buddy, Rob B. Who's he's in the telegram chats every day. Very kind dude. Gave me a really nice Christmas gift this year. He mentioned recently that, the stones that built the star fort underneath the Statue of Liberty came from a quarry, an ancient quarry 
only like three towns east of me in Guilford, Connecticut. And you're you're okay. you're a Connecticut boy too, so you're pretty familiar. I don't know how familiar you are with the shoreline, but yeah, apparently those stones that built that star fort come from the Guilford uh, quarry in Guilford. Wow. Yeah. Small world. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Shout out to Rob. He's a really cool dude. He knows a lot about stone. He knows a lot about masonry. So it's, it's good to have a resource like him. You know, I didn't expect that at all, but we've been getting into this topic with stones and the structures. So it's synchronistically <laughs> Rob's our guy when it comes to that kind of stuff. He usually has a, a clue or an answer, but yeah, I think star forts, you know, What's so interesting about them is a little bit of what you mentioned with the potential for them to be interacting with the environment around them. And and I hadn't even thought of the water purification potential of these structures, but it would make sense. You know, you go uh, to a place where maybe there's not clean running water. How are you going to get, you know, what are you going to do? You're not just going to boil it all, maybe. We're talking about ancient Tartarian technology that's far more advanced than anything we're aware of. We might have it, but we're not aware of it in a public sense in this day and age. Seems like it was much more prevalent only a hundred or so years ago. I mean, we're talking the railways, we're talking airships, we're talking canals, all these things that seem advanced were being done seemingly with more frequency only a hundred or so years ago. Well, yeah. In the 1800s in the United States alone, there was over 90 star forts that were built. So you, you think about that and it's like, Oh, wow, that that's an interesting. And, and again, that's according to the narrative. So if, if you're believing everything that we're told that, that the majority of these were built in the 1800s and, and after 1850 too, which is, so that's later in the game. If you think about it, we're not too far off from munitions there. And, and that's what they said eventually ran the star forts out of functionality was that once explosive munitions came around, they weren't as defensive a position anymore. So they were a liability almost. So they, for the most part, they were just, yeah, they were just let go. Very few of them were maintained. Some of them were even dismantled intentionally. And you just have to wonder why we couldn't find another use for these structures. And yeah, I mean, you go down and you look at the one off of Key West, which is, I believe it's Fort Jefferson. You're looking at over 16 million bricks it took to put that thing together. So, right. And And again, we're surrounded by water too. Yeah. Yeah, it's out, it's out in the middle of the ocean. Yeah. <laughs> it's like they they were they were either, you know, building it directly off of a boat or maybe they had a lower water level or something, but it's fascinating this this uh construction and how it's it's just really prolific. You know, you when we think of time, we tend to think that things get more advanced as time goes on, and I think overwhelmingly what comes to the forefront when you look into Tartaria is the fact that that is not the case at all. It seems like we've gone through a de-evolution as far as our technical application of things like bricks, metal, you know, stone. And I'm again, I'm not an architect. I know you made that preface at the beginning of the episode I was listening to like, hey, I'm not an architect. So, but it is, it's extremely thought provoking at the very least. And 
you know, we may not be qualified to speak technically on these things, but we talk enough about it that I think the right people will start to hear it and bring some maybe more professional answers to the table. Might not be exactly what we're hoping, but at the end of the day, I'm I'm just interested in figuring out the truth because it seems more likely that they're lying to us about the truth than it's just like, you know, not interesting enough for people to remember. I don't think that's ever the case where things are just like, oh, yeah, there's nothing there. So people moved on. It's like, no, 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 no. They're covering this up. They don't want us to know what the hell these star forts are about. Well, and what's interesting, too, is, you know, when you say that, I I laugh because whenever people get close to something is usually when the media starts attacking. And earlier this year, Bloomberg put out a piece, a hit piece on Tartari. And they basically, they interviewed the the kid from Tartari and Meltdown, Red Bricks. And that was their main source of, of information. And so they went to an extreme. They to went to the guy who read. says that every mountain is a melted building. Hmm. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so that's that's who their expert was. But it was just it was basically it was just a hit piece. They went in and they were talking about how, you know, this is again, the people are crazy. They're talking of buildings you know, not matching and that these buildings that were built of, of staff or plaster, you know, that's all they were. They were just temporary buildings. So all these world fairs, all that stuff, all the Tartaria talk, all anything related to it is nonsense. And they just basically shot it down with a, with a little hit piece and, and of course, they tied in QAnon, they tied in January 6th. <laughs> Which, and, by the and way, so that Red just... Bricks guy is like a European dude. He's I don't even think he's from the U.S. He's Norwegian. Yeah, so yeah he's from Norway. He really has a lot invested in Trump. <laughs> yeah, it was just like, so they, they just, and, and, and so that, when I read that article, at first I was like, okay, Maybe, maybe this, and I like to do this with myself. I like to, to flip it on myself. And, you know, cause right now I'm big into believing that there is something more there. And I said, well, what if you're just an idiot? And what if this is all just nonsense? What if it's just a psyop somebody threw out there to get people looking in one direction when something else is going the other way, which they've been known to do in the past, but you know, the more I look into it, it, it yeah, there's too many holes in the story. Right. I mean, from the World's Fairs, you, you can poke holes in those stories all day, and there is no rational explanation to it. And, and you know, like Howdy says in his book is that he's talked with architects and talked with people with experience, and that a lot of this stuff isn't possible in the timeline that we're told with the technology that we're told they had. So it boils down to two things, either A, the timeline is off, or B, they had some sort of technology that allowed them to build these massive extravagant structures that we don't know about. But getting back to what you said, if we think we are the highest evolution here and we're the best, you know, best version of everything ever, we're not going to listen to that. They're the, you're just going to poo-poo that away and say, no, nope, yeah, no, we were just good. And then we lost the ability to do it. Well, how, right. <laughs> you know, how do you lose the ability to, it's like, you know, Don Pettit, when he says, you know, we can't go back to the moon because we lost all technology and it's too hard to, to build again. 
I mean, that was 50 <laughs> years ago. That's 50 years. We're talking hundreds of years. So, right. yeah, I just I just have a tough time. And, and the more I start to see the holes now, do I have all the answers? No, but I'm starting to be able to show little bits of evidence that that, you know, suggest an alternate. Now, we need that verifiable proof, but that's probably buried deep in the Vatican archives and and you or I are not going to have access to that. Yeah. It's, it's funny. One of the first friends I ever made when I was sort of taking this road into conspiracy with all the rabbit holes that litter the way. And this guy is like 10 years older than me. We became buddies, just started smoking weed together. And he had mentioned that he visited the Vatican and I started telling me some weird stuff. And then he was like, you know, man, he's like, like I really don't want to get into it, but you should look up this guy, Jordan Maxwell, because he talks a lot about this stuff. And I was like, okay, you know, and that, that kind of sent me down this incredible rabbit hole. Very fortunate for that dude. Shout out to you, Mo. Uh, I hope you listen to the podcast. But anyways, when you brought up the World's Fair what came to mind was this gentleman by the name of H.H. H. Holmes and how, you know, I don't think this is talked much about when we we're having these Tartaria discussions, but tangentially it is because we're talking about a time period that was, you know, a reset or a culture creation, right? And this theme of the bloodthirsty maniac or the, you know, the un, you know, sensible unreasonable irrational killer came into the cultural zeitgeist around this time and i find it really fascinating that this hh holmes guy you know he had this murder mansion creepy weird building that like you know people would go to they never leave and and then in this hundred or so years that follows that event you see incredible just spike statistically in those types of crimes. I mean, maybe that type of record keeping wasn't available previously, so we just didn't have a record of how many times people committed those kind of things. But I find that absolutely worth examining further. Like, you know, we talk all about culture creation. Well, this seems to me to fit into this model of what the new world after that time period looked like, you know, this criminal being an archetype, you know, a bloodthirsty maniac. Yeah, and that you would need protection, right? Right, And that's what I think, and I think you nailed it spot on. You do see this rise of the, you know, the bloodthirsty, the serial killer after this H.H. Holmes story, which, yeah, in, in during the World's Fair, supposedly he had a, the World Fair Hotel, which they called his, his murder, murder castle. And he would basically, you know, think about it. I mean, you have thousands, well, millions, supposedly, of people coming into town for the fair, you know, needing lodging. It was one go. third of every American at the time. I think I think it was something like two out of ten Americans had, like, gone to this World's Fair. It was like a really huge number of people, which, you know, the population was considerably smaller back then. But, yeah, I mean, everybody conceivably would have had someone in their community that would have been to this world's fair 
Yeah, yeah, because Chicago only had about a million people at the time, and about 27 and a half million people made it to the fair. So you're talking, you know, people from all over, not only the United States, but also from Europe. There was uh, a heavy European and even even South America people were coming up for it at the time. But yeah, so you're you're having no better place you know, for a bloodthirsty killer than this place where you're just having people walking around in almost a foreign land because people didn't travel as much back then in either. And and to show up, and one of the things that I found fascinating in the research was when you look at the World's Fair, one of the things that one of the people said about the people that were at the fair, it was almost like they were in a trance. They were under a spell as they're walking around the fair. And then after the fair, the spell was over. And, and I found that really fascinating because if you look at the videos or pictures of the old World's Fairs, you see very similar people, right? They're all dressed basically the same with the same hats. You know, women are dressed with the, but they're all just walking around kind of looking in a daze and like almost like they were placed there not knowing where they were put, you know, like, and, and so I found that quite fascinating that they, they would say that. And that as you start looking at the fairs more and more and think about that, I mean, to get 27 million people to Chicago, granted it was over a, a six month time frame, but still we're talking and it was all railway transportation. You didn't have planes or they weren't utilizing airships that we know of to transport people so it was all by rail and by ship coming you know across from europe yeah i mean i i never identified as this but i after having conversations on the podcast with people who identify as empaths you know someone i think even said oh you must be an empath I have always had a very, that aside, whether that's true or not, I don't know. I'm not going to go and tell people I am that. But that aside, I've always felt a very strong uncomfortability in groups larger than 50 to 60, you know, like concerts, carnivals, any time I've ever been to anything like that, extremely uncomfortable. And I'm, I'm like taller than the average person. So it's not like I'm like, you know, claustrophobic or anything. I can see my way out of the crowd just fine. But yeah, there's just this sense of disturbing energy and I'm not antisocial by any means, but I am sort of, I, I do prefer to be keep to myself. So, and I'm pointing that out because I wonder how much that plays into something like that. You know, you go to an event, possibly the first time in American history when this many people were gathered around for such a thing. There's an atmosphere of human energy. But now I bring that up because in line with all this electric universe Tartaria stuff, it could be that they were generating some kind of energy field with the buildings themselves and then the people in a sort of like electric relationship come in and complete the circuit and and that's how the flow gets going you know and then and then they have all of these ideas this archetype for what america is gonna be it's like a spell that's what it seems like to me and the reason why exactly the reason why i bring this up is because i was just reading a book by Walter Bosley, Latitude 33, all about Disney World and how this carousel that was placed in Disneyland in California 
it was placed on an intersection of three ley lines. And I think you, you mentioned that either now or in the Starford episode I listened to, you know, ley lines are subjective. Everybody has different, you know, a different idea of, of where the ley lines possibly are. But this author points to a geographical significant sort of fault line. So there is something to it on a, like a, on an, geographical level there's a mask on a mass concentration of granite at this one spot and when they put this carousel on it walter in this book alleges that maybe it's generating this sort of orb of energy this carousel with the rotational effect so not that i know what was at the world's fair but you know if they had a carousel or a ferris wheel or something that's rotating like that that could possibly be an explanation for it just speculative, but have you looked into amusement parks or anything like that? No, I haven't really. Although, you know, Chicago did have the world's largest Ferris wheel that was created for that. It held over 2,500 people at a time. It took about 10 minutes to make a full revolution. And it was so big and so massive that, you know, it was the spectacle of the show. They had to, they had to find something that rivaled the Eiffel Tower mm. uh, in Fr- that France had just put out a few years earlier. So Ferris decided that he would create this wheel. Well, the interesting thing about it, not only did they use it for Chicago, they broke it down and then reused it in 1904 in St. Louis World Fair. So they reused it, and then at the end of the fair, they blew it up. So, again, it's one of those where, and when you said that about the energy, it's like, okay, maybe there is something to that, that this Ferris wheel was bringing in the energy for the fair or had some way to interact with the people. And then at the end of the fair, we have to destroy this thing because we can no longer use it for our use. So it cannot be used by the people. Let's blow it, blow it up. Wow. Yes, and, and yes, yes. It. Like, like yeah. they don't want any more interference. Like we made the, the magic happen. If this thing keeps running, it's just going to interfere. Wow. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So that's one of the things I was looking at too, was, was kind of the energy around it because when you you see them destroying it and you mentioned this earlier, we're, we're talking a time when we didn't, America didn't have a, you know, we're talking around the civil war post civil war when America was borderline bankrupt. So to, to be putting up and, and investing all this money into these buildings and these fairs, many of which lost money in the end and we know how these people do not like to lose money it really makes you wonder what was the purpose of these because and the placement as well because you start looking at some of the sites i mean buffalo new york why would there be all of this up in buffalo and then you're like oh well you have niagara falls you have the erie canal you have all of these structures and things that are up there that are very energetic and Buffalo, yeah, yeah. Although now it may seem as kind of an afterthought. Back then, yeah, that's a heavy energetic based area, right. and that's what we see a lot. Is is, and it's not verifiable though, right? I mean, like you said, ley lines are kind of subjective right now. There's no definite answer as to where the ley lines are, what the source of them is, what are their powers. It's it's one of these things that you know I I like watching Michelle Gibson. She's one of my my favorite researchers and she's done a lot of work on it and actually that's how she started in this was she had a map of america and just started drawing lines connecting 
cities and things. And it ended up making this giant, almost flower of life pattern that she found within America that she believes is the ley line grid here. And very similar uh, to so, what yeah. Peter Shampoo has done. I, I spoke with Peter on the podcast and I, I found his book before interviewing him. And, and he has a very similar arrangement, not a flower of life, but it's a circle and it, you basically uh, can see it in the way that the shape of the North American continent is. It's kind of like a yin-yang, the way Mexico kind of curves. And then you see this like fractalizing. But yeah, it, it's absolutely fascinating. And it's a global, it's literally figuratively a global topic to wrap your head around. It's it's immense. But yeah, I, I want to take it back to the point about they didn't make any money. Because I, th- I think my biggest suspicion... And I try to stay as open-minded as possible, but I also like to be realistic. My biggest suspicion th- through hearing like the, you know, we, we mentioned this previously, the really temporary structures that they supposedly built and then destroyed. My thought was, well, is there an insurance sort of scam going on here? You know, they, they spend all this money to build a project. They probably, you know, didn't pay the workers as much as they needed to. You know, there's a lot of like money trickery that goes on with these big projects. I wondered how much insurance scams or, you know, getting their insurance money back somehow played into it. But to to learn that they didn't make, you know, they lost money with these kind of things. It just it that doesn't it doesn't add up. It's like, well, yeah, they're not just burning it down to to recoup on the insurance claim, you know, that's for sure. Maybe we can't say that about the World Trade Center, but we can probably say that about the World's Fair. Well, yeah, when you start looking at the World's Fair, what we're told is that there was usually one or two permanent structures at every fair. And that was for insurance purposes, because for them to be able to bring in these fine works of art and have these what they would call palaces of fine arts, where they would bring in all sorts of artwork, you know, sculptures from around the world. I mean, we're talking millions of dollars worth of artwork. And so these buildings were the ones that we were told had to be permanent facilities for insurance purposes to allow these works to come in there. Now, if you believe that, that's very interesting because, you know, you see some of these other buildings and they look just as structurally sound, but yet we're told they're temporary. An interesting point I've heard recently about the buildings themselves is, yeah, they try and play it off that some of these buildings were temporary or they were built of staff or, or, or plaster, a lot of the houses at the time were made of that same material and they weren't made as a temporary structure. So to, to just simply say that, Oh, these things were just meant to be built for these four years to be torn down this, the temporary ones. That's even a bit of a stretch because to even make a building out of, out of staff, it is going to last a, a, a decent amount of time. Now it's obviously not going to last as long as stone would, but the fact that they, they did create these buildings and then just destroyed them shows you that there was something being hidden because these buildings could have lasted on for years and years and years. And in fact, some of them did because some of the fairs, there was pushback from the local populace that we would like to keep some of these buildings. So there were some of these quote unquote temporary structures that lasted on for years and years after the fact. 
Yeah. So I, I see. I grew up in a house that was, I think, built in the 19th century. And luckily my dad is very, you know, handy and knows how to, you know, fix her up, so to speak. And he was able to take this basically ticky tacky roof that they had connecting what was once a dining room to the kitchen and, you know, replace it. Unfortunately, when I was a kid, there was a fire and while the house was under construction and that part of the house uh, was destroyed, a very small sort of part of the house. But it, it's odd, you know, that claim that, oh, it was just temporary. Because, yeah, to your point, I mean, I lived in a house that was built like that. It's just the way that they built houses back then. And, you know, a lot of people who live in New England probably have similar stories in their family of, like, little house renovations that had to be done because there's just odd, weird things that are built like my childhood home has a diamond shaped window i don't think there's any other houses in the whole neighborhood not let alone on the street the whole neighborhood with that exact type of window so there was an odd shift at some point in america where we went from sort of this freestyle form of architecture to a very standard you know now you see with these new neighborhoods that are built they're all pretty much the same design maybe save for like a few variations in color or like where a garage is placed or not placed but you know we we went from sort of an open landscape of architecture to a very fixed i mean you hear like the whole brutalism thing come into the mix when we talk about tartaria because there is this very strong contrast you have uh, brutalist buildings, which for those who aren't familiar with that term, look it up. You'll probably recognize maybe the school you went to, high school, or maybe your post office has this sort of theme to it. Very concrete, square, no beauty at all. That's supposedly made from a, a communist philosophy, whereas a lot of these structures that we would consider Renaissance, Victorian, uh, they, they seem to be built with a sort of flair, a design, but as we examine them, we start to see maybe they're like conducting energy. And then you compare that to the brutalist structures, there's no conduction going on at all. I mean, they're just blocks. They're straight up just like static energy, it seems like. Yeah, and we went from that that structure that you were talking about where they could it's almost like the buildings were some sort of energy device or part of the energy whereas now if you look at it and and you look at the term electricity it's the electric city and if you look at a city you know an overview of a city these days it looks an awful lot like a motherboard to a computer so you're seeing that Although it may not be the same way it was before, I think functionally the architecture still acts in the same manner. It still has that property where it needs, you know, obviously needs the human in it too now for the battery, like you mentioned before. But I think there is something to that. There is some energetic basis to the way that cities are laid out. And, and even to this day, I, I think it's still, they have some sort of function with the way energy is harnessed or drawn or used in those city areas based on the landscape itself. Yeah. Yeah. And it, I mean, when we're getting into the occult sort of dimensions of it, this is not a new practice. You know, the idea of building a city in the proportions of a man, I think that's sort of what they would do with temples. They would shape them so that like the the 
priests were at the head of the building and you walked in through the feet of the building and like the priests come in through the arms of the building, you know, and the people sit in the sort of body of the building. But then when you see that applied to the city, it almost seems like if we were to think of it as a computer or uh, some sort of way to organize this energy, it almost seems like the city hall or the places where people are governing the city from are in central locations where the energy might be funneled into. I mean, on an esoteric occult level, it seems like at least symbolically that's the case. Cause I love that description of a, a motherboard uh, computer chip also comes up a lot. I just had a conversation with Nick Hinton who sort of described it that way. And uh, others have used that same description. I think, you know, flying into a city, I've never flown as an adult, only when I was a kid. So I don't quite remember the the look of the land from the sky. But you hear that a lot from people who fly across the country and you see these cities in the distance. and They don't look symbiotic. They look like some kind of parasitic, techno-humanist or tra- transhumanist-like you know, insert into the natural landscape. And in contrast, when you look at these old world civilizations, especially like when we focus in on the star fort, it looks like they're in complete harmony with nature. And, and, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with that history channel program where they showed how quickly our structures would be eaten up by nature but it kind of makes sense that we would want to live in harmony with nature if we expect our civilization to have any longevity because it's pretty obvious to to us that nature is much more powerful than us and through storms through plant growth through you know the shifting of water and the and the ground itself there's a lot that can change in one given location so to be sort of in harmony with the forces of nature you're much more likely to last than if you just ignorantly go about it the way we're going about it, it seems, in our Western world where some of our cities are built in places that flood every every year. Some of our cities are built in places where hurricanes just come and destroy everything. I mean, it doesn't seem like we're masters of our, of our environment. We're trying to master it, but we, we never really... It seems like we're just upsetting the harmony, you know, creating more resistance from nature with the way we build. Yeah, I'm with you. I think we've gone away from that. Any concern of, of working in all the climate change nonsense aside, I, I think we've gone away from having any connection to nature for the most part, especially in the cities. When you get to the outskirts, you know, you're starting to see a, a lot of people wanting to get off the grid, wanting to to start things like homesteads and, and get more connected with the earth and, and with the land around them, because they are seeing that what we are doing is not, it's not conducive to longevity. I mean, you mentioned it before about, you know, lifespans and things like that, about how possibly, you know, you look even in the Bible, there were people that lived for hundreds of years. And that was without all this modern technology that we have. So, it's almost as if, yeah, we've we've have taken that step back and and based on that last eighteen hundreds reset where we moved into the industrial revolution and we're in that, you know, Rockefeller medicine, Rockefeller school systems, where we've 
taken out any connection to nature, and it's it's more about science and controlling and man being the ultimate. Whereas in the past, nature was the ultimate. That was, you know, we respected it. We worked with it. And now it's like, no, I don't care. You know, the, the mindset of humanity is, is we're going to do what we need to do to survive. And if, if it takes nature to suffer, so be it. Although the politicians will tell you different because they're looking for some nice tax incentives and things like that. They don't really give a shit about the environment either. But we have, yeah, I, I really feel like we've lost that touch. And that's why, you know, when you said before, we always think we're the most civilized and most evolved. I really think like you were saying, we've taken a small step back. We've lost that connection with nature and, and the ability to work with it to not only heal humanity but to, to heal the planet itself right yeah and i mean you even go back to the old world structures a lot of them just seem so advanced compared to what we i mean sacsayhuaman and where there are stones that literally are so fit perfectly and we're not talking you know hand-sized stones we're talking about human-sized stones huge stones and they're you know fit so precisely that you can't even slide a, a sheet of paper in between them and great wall of china another example we kind of mentioned it's going along the tops of mountains it's not going you know th around mountains it's going along the ridge lines of mountains which you know i don't know if we could pull something that, like that off you know with the technology we have today now and i see in my own backyard and it's awesome speaking with you because you more than most people probably understand what i'm talking about when i talk about the stone rows you know being from connecticut as well i mean you've seen them matt they're pretty massive in a lot of cases yeah. it, it's a feat i mean to to suggest that it was purely the work of slaves or you know indians or whatever they explain it farmers and oxes i mean some of these boulders are gigantic megalithic and they're comprised in these stone rows that go up mountains in the same way uh where you're like okay i could see how maybe humans built that but like why because that's very difficult like who's gonna go through the effort of putting a stone row up the side of a hill just to say yeah that's my property it's like it just doesn't you know add up and i i'm so fascinated with this whole Tartaria subject for the same reason, because a place like Hartford, Connecticut, a place like New Haven, Connecticut, I've had past guest Andreas Zertis tell me that, you know, the whole Gold Coast, Fairfield, Greenwich, that area has some connections to Tartaria. You know, these are places we've been, we can visit, we, we've probably seen buildings that might be tartarian and just didn't know what we were looking at until you find or stumble upon a subject like this and it gives you a whole new lens to re-examine the place you grew up have you you know looked into our state at all and, and seen what's what's going on here in, in the far past yeah, no, I haven't dug too much into Connecticut. I'm I'm up in Mass right now, and I've been actually I just connected with a guy the other day, who uh, was telling me about some megaliths up here in the area, and a couple towns over. So I'm I'm hoping to go get a little more direction from him, so I'm not just wandering aimlessly in the woods to find out where they are and go check them out. 
but being up here in New England, there is so much history. I, I, I'm, I'm with you in the, in the sense that I think we have a little bit more than obviously the West Coast when it comes to our history. You know, we have a little bit more detail out here. It's a little bit more clear. And the more you get out West, the more fuzzy the tale gets. And I, I always found that interesting that the whole entire planet was basically developed or populated, but North, you know, specifically America was just kind of this wild land with these natives that just savages that just ran around for thousands of years. And no one, no one ever thought to come here. No one ever thought to populate here, you know, to build here. It, you know, the Vikings might've come a couple times by accident or the Chinese might've made it here by accident. You know, you hear all these stories and it's, it just doesn't make sense. There right. is, something that is being hidden about the history of America that is much more significant in the overall picture than we're being told. I've been looking a lot lately into the, the Egyptian connection to, to America, and there's a deep Egyptian connection to America, and, and it goes as far as even like the Grand Canyon. There's supposedly Egyptian monuments and obelisks and, and symbols in the Grand Canyon, and you got to ask yourself, how did they get there? That's just, just that seems like an awfully random spot for the Egyptians to show up if they didn't have some sort of presence here prior. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, so much comes to mind. We've we've talked about this a lot on the show. And, you know, I've mentioned before plenty of times Ross Ben and his work, the, the book, The Mysterious or sorry, Great Mystery Philadelphia. It's right next to me. Should get it right. And he mentions a. African king who leaves Africa in 846 AD, something like that. There's a story of him sailing across the Atlantic with a huge number of ships and is never seen again until maybe a couple decades later, a guy comes back and he's like, Hey, yeah, we, uh, we didn't make it, but you know, we, we need more ships. And, and then a whole huge, another fleet leaves and they're never seen again. So it's like, Hmm, did they really not make it anywhere? Like, was that just the cover story? So no one would follow. That seems to be the case. And then the convenient connection to this whole, you know, history of what we're describing sort of sarcastically here of the, the savages, right? That was much uh, a big part of the narrative given to us with the World's Fair, you know, that, that, oh yeah, America, this is how it was. And there was this, you know, caveman-like person who was here and they didn't really have a lot going on, yet somehow they were so advanced that they inspired the Confederacy, right? The Confederacy inspired the founding fathers to come up with the whole ideas that they, you know, you know, were given to them by God and, and the Indians, right? It's just, these things don't make any sense. It's just, I don't know. And it is touchy too, because people don't like hearing this kind of stuff, especially in New England. You know, you say the the history's a little more established here, but still, like, if you've come across something that maybe is in contrary to what people have established. I mean, we see that with Shakespeare, right? Some people have talked about Shakespeare being someone else than the Staffordshire guy, but there's this whole industry of tourism in Staffordshire, England that, you know, they don't want that sort of, they don't want to lose that. So they're not going to support any idea that goes against Shakespeare being that guy from that town. Right. And I think there's a very similar dynamic 
with history all over the world where certain people attach themselves financially to a idea that may or may not be true, but it becomes true because they attach themselves to it. And then over time, people just take it as, you know, an accepted truth when it's a really it's a, a misconstruction. Well, yeah, and we get it up here, especially, you know, the Pilgrim story, all these different historical narratives that were told that factually they just don't make sense. You know, it, it doesn't add up. And and you're right, though, you, you have to be gentle with this because it does. There's a lot of people who can't have any cognitive dissonance with this. You You cannot break the narrative with them or show any cracks in it. And that's one of the things I think that this time frame is doing more so than ever before is it's exposing the cracks in the narrative. And now we have the ability like we're doing right now to get together and share research that we found. Right. Whereas in the past, this research never would have even made it to public. I mean, the, the, the papers would have been destroyed. The person would have been, you know, written off as, as being crazy. And, and that would have been the end of it. But as we start to dig back, now you're starting to see that the native history is, is so much more powerful and, and so much more civilized than we were told. But yet you go back to the World's Fair, like you were saying, they had human zoos where they would take groups of natives, whether it was Native Americans, whether it was, you know, people down from the swamp, and they'd put them in what they considered, quote unquote, their habitat in a zoo, at the World Fair, like a zoo. So they were in a containment and they would live how they would live their normal life. So it was like going to the Bronx Zoo and watching the lion in the lion den. So you could watch these people. I mean, if you can't think of anything that's more racist and more derogatory than, than putting people into human zoos, uh, but that's where we were. And that, that was part of the World's Fair also. I mean, Chicago was called the Great White City. And it wasn't just because they whitewashed all the buildings. It was because th this was the announcement of the great European, right? This was the European era. We are going to, the industrial revolution is going to bring in the power of the white, you know, the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. Right. And, you know, that didn't sit well with a lot of people. So, you know, it, it's where we are now, but yeah, they, they, they put people in, and this was something they did across multiple world's fairs. It wasn't just one where they had human zoos. So it was them uh, over and over showing you their story, their narrative about these, you know, these primitive folk that just lived off the land. They didn't live in any structures. They never built anything, you know, and, right. and, and that gets you into like the burial mounds, Right. You look at the burial mounds and and that's a whole nother rabbit hole in itself, because you find these mounds across America. And in the 1800s, a lot of them were destroyed and just bulldozed over and and right. whatever remnants were inside were taken either by the Smithsonian or just buried in place. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's definitely. And even up here in New England, we still have stone structures that are pretty much ignored or are really not talked about you know you mentioned a friend mentioned some megaliths that you're going to check out i'd love to either join you or learn about where those are and find my way up there myself because there's a whole list that i've started to create of places in new england that i want to visit where there is still evidence of that culture which as you put and i agree with this it 
we're much more advanced than we're told. And to the point of the human zoos, you know, zoos in themselves with animals in them, not human beings, are extremely fascinating to me because they're, you know, kind of a remnant of that time period, you know, and like a lot of really strange people have their name as like the, the, the title of zoos, you know, because they were the founders, they put all the money behind it and whatever it is, but it is curious that this, I, you know, and I'm only bringing this up really quickly because I think this deserves a whole deep dive, like the strange history of zoos and the implications of that, because I used to think it was a good thing. You know, I used to be like, you know what, people in the city, they don't, you know, have the ability to go to the forest as much as somebody who lives in a rural area. So they might not appreciate nature as much without a zoo, you know? So I think people should appreciate nature, appreciate animals. Maybe they'll litter less if they did that, (laughs) if they appreciated animals. So I used to be in favor of zoos, but now it feels like a lot of those groups that set those zoos up had an agenda ultimately to maybe some aims that are not good for us as a species and even not good as animals or the environment in general. You know, you see this with the whole climate change BS, as you put it. And it made me think like, you know, who really believes in climate change? People who live in cities, you know, it's like, it seems like the people who live in cities who interact with nature the least are the ones who think that nature is fucked up. And it's like, no, you guys are in a really fucked up part of nature. But if you go to a wild area and there still is many wild areas here in the planet, you'll see how powerful nature truly is, you know? And I think, again, that's a little bit of a a tangent from the other side of, of where I wanted to, to go with what you said, which is the ability for them to, you know, alchemize, the story of the great European, because I think it's more than just, and this is a touchy subject for sure. So we don't have to spend too much time on it, but I think it's worth noting that like this whole, this time period when this was talked about, they still didn't really agree, you know, that the human species was one homogenous species. They were still thinking like, oh, there's different species and they all intermingle. And, but now we kind of have this idea that oh yeah we're all one race of being which is true i don't disagree with that but if we're going to be extremely scientific about it which is not exactly my thing either technically there are different types of human beings there are different variations just like we see in all the other different types of living beings here on the planet. There are variations, right? Based on what environment our genomes are expressing themselves determines their direction in the future as they adapt to the, you know, factors in their environment. So that being said, and I'm kind of going around in circles here, man, I'm sorry, but the, the, the point I'm trying to connect this all to was, I heard from a very close person in my life, a mentor, so to speak, who was raised in a Pueblo Native American culture. He's a Pueblo guy who made his way out to New Haven. He told me that the medicine wheel represents the four races of the earth, the white man, the yellow man, the black man, and the red man. These are his words, not mine, folks. And he said that the white man has every root, race has a special ability and it's based on an element right the black race is water the yellow race is air 
the the red race is earth and the white race is fire and when you talked about this like great european it kind of brought that to mind because if you think about the industrial revolution it's primarily wrapped around metallurgy which is completely fire i mean you need fire to work with metal and that's what the industrial revolution really wraps around is the use of metal the use of these different uh types of chemistry and i think it's absolutely fascinating to point that out because then you start to see maybe the magical side of what was really going on with the world fair you know when you see that that there are these sort of different expressions of the human being and they're not all, you know, working towards the same agenda. Some of them want, you know, their root race to be better than others. And then there's the whole white supremacy thing, which is not what we're talking about here. We're talking about a more general kind of chemical relationship, you know, fire and earth interacting, you know, the red man and the white man interacting and, and they kind of alchemically laid it out that way through the world's fair. I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm and you just, you just blew my mind with that connection because if you think about it, what, what happened in the 1800s over and over, it was fire. There were these massive fires, whether it was New York city, whether it was the world's fairs, Wherever you would go, there were these massive fires in the 1800s that, you know, as they're ushering in this new era of, quote unquote, the white man, as you know, what we said with Chicago, that's that's really fascinating because it's almost like they use that fire to to bring in this usher in this new era and just by straight destruction, because, I mean, one of the most fascinating fires I ever looked at was in 1871. You have the Great Chicago Fire, which took place, but at the same exact on the same exact day, you have the Peshtigo Fire, which is up north in Wisconsin, and then across Lake Michigan on the other side of it. At the same time, you have a a fire in Michigan as well. The fire in Michigan burnt about a million and a half acres. The fire up in Pistigo built, uh, burned like a million two acres. But yet the only fire that's really talked about is that fire in Chicago that, you know, supposedly started with a cow knocking over a candle with his tail and burning down the whole city. So that's one where how is there three? We're not talking, you know, brush fires. We're talking over a million acres burned in two cities and then Chicago being all but wiped out on the same exact day right wow. yeah there's just all sorts of stories like that with fires in the 1800s and when you said that something clicked that man that that the white man being fire that may be their tool to usher in their era yeah yeah and again you know these are these are my friend amos's words not mine and i think that comes from you know things he's learned from his teachings and wherever he learned in his tribe or whatever else he learned in his life. I, you know, he's not a, he's not a simple person. He's a complex person just like you and I, but I think the, the interesting thing of what he said was, was also that, that, you know, our power is not exactly something we know how to yield. Like water is the strength of the, root race the black root race and if you consider like the fact that you know they were some of the first navigators of the ocean 
that puts it in a whole nother respect, you know, because now you hear like this kind of almost racist sounding thing, like, oh, black people don't know how to swim. So when you hear that power, their power is water, you're like, huh, what? But no, I mean, they are really like some of the world's oldest ocean navigators and you know their kingdoms in africa were so great because they were some of the first traders you know and i think that's a big thing in the tartaria topic that i don't hear mentioned enough andreas talks about it sometimes but the berbers right we have this idea that the barbarians you know they're <laughs> sounds a lot like tartarians but the barbarians are just like awful and if you're a barbarian you're you're terrible you know you're a bad person but you know, it doesn't come from a. It doesn't come from war. It comes from a group of people that were at some point the enemy of the people that we get our history from. I mean, that seems to be how simple it is. So now we're living in a time where you, you mention black, white, red, yellow, and you know it could get you in some trouble. But I think people are are most open or are more open minded when they come to a show like this. So if if somebody wants to clip this and take it out of context, please. Let me take the blame, not Matt, because I said it all, not Matt. <laughs> but, Please. <laughs> uh, but, you know, but that's how it is, unfortunately. And I think, you know, there's something to be said about that because, you know, it's it's where things have been demonized that you find the propaganda, you know, and they've demonized us having an open discourse about race. You know, anybody who has our skin color cannot talk about race this openly because we might be racist or we might be, you know, white supremacist. Right. But at the same time, you know, I've had podcasts with folks that I disagree with. I agree with, you know, so there's no, you know, there's no part of me that uh, represents that at all. It's very obvious, but they can take it and use it against you and totally turn a bunch of people off from, learning more about maybe what was being said just because of that one little point, you know, just cause so I think that's, you know, that's, that kind of fits into the Tartarian topic. Cause now, like you pointed out with the red bricks interview there <laughs> that he, he was in a sort of mainstream outlet getting interviewed. That's, you know, how they do it. They take an extreme portrayed as the norm. And then everybody writes that whole topic off and no education happens. It's just ignorance from there on. Yeah. Oh, you're absolutely right. And, and, and that's the easy way to diffuse all this, right. Is to just say, Oh, well, that's, that's just ignorant. That's not how it goes. And that's the main argument you get a lot of times is just that, well, how can we never heard about this stuff? Well, how, how come it's not in the history books? Mm -hmm. Well, that's that's the million-dollar question. Why isn't it in the history books? And why do we have CIA documents saying that there was an effort to erase Tartaria from the history books? I mean, that's right. in writing in CIA documents. So there is, again, if we want to get back to the term conspiracy, there is a conspiracy right there, right? right? They, they have intentionally gotten rid of any mention or cultural relativity around the word tartar mm. now why and then you, you know you start looking at other things and, and these are stupid little things but like tartar sauce right i mean they give you this kind of nasty white gooey gross sauce and yeah that's tartar sauce but like what, that's what's supposed to be our memory of tartaria think about that though too though what do we what do we eat with tartar sauce fish right yep 
who who's fishing people who travel the seas people who trade uh, in that time period when boats were the only way to get around so it, or get far distances conceivably right so i think that's an interesting association but then tar and feather is another one you know people in that middle ages time period would get tar and feathered and tar is considered you know uh kind of a bad thing even though i've used pine tar to for hair products and toothpaste and it's great <laughs> oh yeah well the, the the other interesting thing about it is thinking about the area that you know tartaria was on the map growing up we were always told that like siberia was the area you never want to go there that's like the worst punishment Baron. ever is to be yeah. sent to siberia yeah you're going to be put on a train and sent to siberia and you're just going out in this, it's just frigid and barren land that you're going to be sent to. And again, now looking back on it, it has made me rethink the whole Siberian question. And what are they, what are they hiding up there? Is there things on the map that we're not told about? You know, is the map, I haven't been there, so I can't speak to it myself, but. What always stood out to me is the connection with the shamanism. I mean, you see all of these shamanistic cultures up there in Russia and then, you know, right. Going across that Bering land bridge that, you know, Ari talks about that would have been submerged in the mud flood possibly, you know, you see that same sort of culture going down into North America, into South America, up through, you know, Russia there. I find that really curious that they kind of, also have this very close relationship with the other world, other realms through plants and through ritual and through this sort of spiritual culture. It's, yeah, it's definitely one of those indications, but I, I want to go into maybe the best evidence. Cause you brought up like explaining, you know, this to somebody who doesn't possibly agree, you know, what they'll usually say is something to the effect of like, oh, yeah, well, how come we haven't heard this before? So do you have any like big Tartaria clues that have stood out to you through your research that you're like, well, if somebody checks this out, then they're, they'll definitely, you know, like this is it, it just can't be explained. You know, obviously the world's fair. We talked about that. But are there any others that stand out as like good evidence for Tartaria if we were to make a case I, I for haven't- it? Yeah, I haven't dug that far back, Mark, to be honest. Like like I said, I, I started this, and, and it's only been about six or eight months that I've been really diving into, you know, the World Fair and everything. I think I got, I don't know, it's probably about a year now because I got Howdy, Howdy's book about last year, Christmas time. So what I'm doing is I'm going backwards. I, I'm starting in like the 1800s with like the World's Fair and I'm slowly working my way back towards the 17th century. And there, but there's, throughout history, there are a lot of things that you look at and they just don't make sense. You know, you look at the Civil War and and, and Sherman's march down south. Like, why did he just dr- drive right down south and just destroy anything in his path? Was that real? What were they really doing? It wasn't, you know, strategic war area that he was taking over. He was just destroying cities and went right down where the Cherokee center was. But as far as like actual hard proofs, I think my best example that I have now is, is the world's fairs. That's what would be kind of my go-to 
as because you can give them a full picture that doesn't add up from the 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 storyline itself to the money to the people that were there to the technology that was there or not there that that's usually my mainstay to go to but again you can look at architecture like i look at crystal palaces and things like that as well that's another type of architecture that goes back but you know, I, yeah, I've really struggled to find hard, hard evidence, right? Like, you know, you, you can find all of these circumstantial items that when you put them all together, it makes a pretty good point. But separately, there are holes in it. And, and that's one of the, you know, one of the great jobs that Michelle Gibson, and I keep referencing her because she does some of the best research consistently on this and has hit on so many angles of this that when you start looking it up and putting the pieces together yeah it does start to give you a different picture but you know to your back to your question i don't have like that smoking gun i i don't have that one piece of evidence that i can go to and say yep this is the guarantee this is absolutely 100 percent proves tartaria existed other than just showing someone an old map where that the land was physically there it was called tartaria and it was on the maps in olden times agreed yeah and i i definitely didn't mean to put you on the spot there because i don't think that you know we necessarily need that to go into this topic and find some cool stuff you know regardless of if whether it fits into the sort of speculative theory that's being laid out in a lot of different youtube channels and other podcasts you still learn something about history that at the end of the day, it's valuable in my opinion. Just looking into the history of New England has led me to find a lot of really cool stuff. But yeah, man, I mean, there was a lot that we left off the table. I'm sure a lot of that people can find when they check out your podcast, The Great Deception Podcast. You had some guests on, you've done several episodes on different topics some of which we've talked about today. There was something you, you had in the notes there about Disney. Is there anything you wanted to share about Dark Disney before we wrapped up here today? Oh, no, that was that was kind of what got me into the into the game was mm. I was known as the Disney guy originally because I had I had been on Ryan's Dangerous World podcast and I did a show with the New York Patriot on his podcast about the dark side of Disney because, you know, that that kind of got me into this deeper research. And it happened during the pandemic last year that. You know, I saw this thread out there that was kind of connecting Disney with, you know, na Nazis and with uh, Crowley and all, all these interesting characters. And I'm like, wow, this is some this is some bullshit. Let me go. Let me go research this and and just show that it's all garbage. And so I started digging into it and I started finding out, you know, Disney had ties to the CIA. He had ties to the FBI. He has ties to NASA, to Nazis, to Freemasons to potentially Rosicrucians and all that. So it, it, it led to quite an interesting, and I did my first episode of my podcast about it, just to go over to show people, because one of the biggest things nowadays is Disney has become a cult. It, it has that, there are some people who just follow the Disney way of life, you know, no questions asked. And you know, one of the things you have to look at is, is anything that becomes that big 
nowadays or anyone that becomes that powerful, they have to play ball. And you don't get that big without having some connections or some ties to someone bigger than you. And Disney, I, I feel, is was strictly created as a intelligence slash mind control uh, device of the CIA. And the CIA, I mean, they helped them acquire all of their land in Florida to create Disney World. They teamed with them on a bunch of different movies and projects along the way. So it's just one of those where if you look at Disney on the on the surface, it gives you one thing. When you dig into Disney and, and some of the messages that it puts out in its programming, and it is programming, it's you get a whole different view of Disney and, and, and that clean, crisp, clean old uncle Walt kind of fades <laughs> a little bit and you see this guy was flawed, man. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely, I definitely agree. And the strangest thing is these folks who are so obsessed with Disney, like they wear Disney clothes, they have it in their house. They go there yearly or monthly, even worse, you know, or, or they go and live there. I mean, geez, it is unlike any other amusement park. It has quite literally a cult following. Wow. Yeah. I, I was, I've been talking about this book probably way too much. Listeners are like, shut up about Latitude 33 already. <laughs> but I, it goes into, you know, this kind of stuff about Disney. But Walter, and he's an ex-FBI agent, so I'm not like, I don't have any illusions about him and possibly him leaving out information or not looking into certain things. It just makes me more suspicious now because he writes that, you know, he, he doesn't think that, Walt Disney was up to anything and he just was like a, a regular guy who, you know, did some amazing things and, and was a prolific businessman. But he he connects the uh, the point about the carousel to a gentleman who Disney worked with by the name of C.V. Wood and C.V. Wood was employed by the Stanford Research Institute until Disney approached them about finding a location for Disneyland and you know, obviously Disney, the way he operated, he, you know, basically sweetheart dealed CV Wood and said, come work for me and be my main engineer. And this guy, CV Wood, who was very much connected to a lot of those same groups you mentioned before and had some possibly esoteric knowledge. He, I think Walter puts it that the carousel and the ley line placement that we talked about earlier was all CV Wood, not Disney. So that's kind of where Walter takes his approach with this book. But I don't, you know, I, I thought the the book was great, but I don't, you know, totally agree with his assumption or or conclusion that Walt Disney was was just a stand up businessman who smoked too much and and died young. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the guy created. He has Club Thirty Three, which is a basically a Freemason club that they, you know, originally it started in just in California and they have it. It's on the 33rd parallel. It's on, uh, I think it's 33 Royal street is the name of the address that, that you can find it at. So yeah, he definitely has some cult ties to him and some, and he, he was known to be part of the secret society. So I, I think there's definitely more to Uncle Uncle Walt than people have been led to believe. And, and I definitely, 
you know, laid out a pretty good case in in my podcast, and and you see it in the in the cartoons. I mean, the 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 themes of dead parents and child abuse and and just scaring and torturing children. It's 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 prevalent and it's over and over again in the in all of their programming. Yeah. Yeah, the concept of killing off the mother and yeah, you know, Bambi, Lion King, I I mean pretty much every and then you have these strange figures like Cruella Deville in 101 Dalmatians, you know, these you get witches. Yeah, yeah witches or yeah, these these you know, the evil stepsisters and things right. like this where you have those just nasty adults that are just there to torture children. And it's like, man, this and is you supposed put, to be you kids put that, programming. But you put that, you know, up against what was going on in the 1800s with orphan trains and the incubator. You know, I forget how Michelle, what the word is for it, but I know Michelle talks about this, the incubatoriums or something like that. The infantoriums. There it is. Yes. And they had them in the incubators. That's where I'm confusing that. But yeah, it is this like strange time in history where, you know, you have the child labor laws and all that stuff. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't fit into what we're told, but I think it is very unsettling when you know what we know now about the child trafficking rings and, and maybe they go way back to that time period. And that's why there's all that symbolism. I mean, I recently, I forget which author put this out, but they're making a connection between the Goonies and child trafficking. I don't think that's a Disney movie. I think that's Spielberg. But but yeah, the Goonies is is an interesting kind of child trafficking kind of illusion. But that's why I brought up 101 Dalmatians because they kind of have that same feel as well. And Pinocchio is yep. another one. Peter Pan. I mean, yeah, they do have that theme throughout the the you know culture of Disney. Oh, yeah. Disney. Yeah. You can take Disney at the face value, but when you dig a little bit into it, you start seeing a whole different side of it. And and it's there and it's done intentionally, you know, whether and, and, and people laugh because they're like, oh, well, why? Why would they do that? So because it's part of the agenda. They have it's part of this. They are shaping cultural means through this stuff and if everybody thinks everything is just roses and 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 peaceful you're in for rude awakening because there are dark art dark artists out there that are working to program you in a certain direction right well matt this has been awesome man this has been you know a deep dive into many different things much of which folks can find if they check out your podcast the great deception podcast for more info on this and more because you seem like you're constantly researching things. So I'm sure there's going to be a lot more as time goes on. So I'm looking forward to staying up to date with all that. Tell the listeners what else you got going on. You got a Patreon, you got a way people can support the holidays are coming up or maybe by the time this episode's out, it'll probably be about a new year's time. So, you know, show Matt some love for your, your new year's resolution. Yeah, I, I got, you know, I'm just planning on keeping the podcast going. Like like you said, I'm only about 20 episodes in, 15 episodes in. So I'm just building it up. I don't have any any Patreon. I'm not doing any monetization yet. Uh, I'm hoping that's one of the steps I'll take next year is to, because it's not free. 
it, I actually paid to put this thing out, not only in time, but monetarily to, to get all the tools and everything that we need. So, uh, yeah. So I think, I think I will eventually get there, but right for right now, if you just, you know, follow my podcast, uh, great deception podcast, or go to my Instagram at the great deception podcast, just leave a review, leave me a rating. I I'd appreciate it. I do have a YouTube channel with a couple of videos out there, but they already dinged one of my world's fairs videos and took that down. So I also have some on bit shoot and odyssey. So, it, you know, same videos, but they probably won't take me down. And I hope, you know, going forward to do a little bit more of the video. Like you said, I, I do a one man podcast for the most part. And I like to do, you know, deep dives and things like that. But I'd also like to get a lot more interviews this year. I start talking to more people and, and things like that. And then also I have uh, the Monday night master debaters, which is on every Monday night, get four or five people together. And, you know, we go in with no agenda and just talk about anything that comes up, whether it's current events, whether it's whatever's going on in, in outside of the news. And that, that's what I really enjoy is just connecting with people. I've, I've seen a lot of people make some connections on there where they end up on other people's podcasts. And, and, and it's a beautiful thing, man, because I just love seeing people's voices get out there and watching people grow and make, make uh, nice connections and relationships. And, and in today's day and age, that's kind of what it's all about. Indeed. Yeah. And I've been a guest on the master debaters. So I definitely encourage folks to check that out. Subscribe to Matt's podcast. The link is in the description. And uh, for those out there listening, thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. My name's Gabe, a.k.a. Whirling Whale. And my family thinks I'm crazy because I think they're so crazy for not believing in the magic of the realm that we live in. This is an amazing reality we've been given possibilities are just mind-boggling <laughs> much love everybody peace and strength hey mark this is gordon from the arizona desert and my family thinks i'm crazy because they have their illusions intact more that we live in authenticity and ask ourselves the hard questions and ask the hard questions of the world around us. We're not afraid to be discerning and intuitive. Those layers of illusion start to fall away. And you end up at this, some sort of conspiritual understanding and the layers never stop. It's an infinity of those illusions. So we have to keep going. I think that's what we're here to do is ask the hard questions. And I appreciate that about you, brother. Hi, my name is Ori and my family thinks I'm crazy because ever since 2002, when I was about 11 years old, movies and Disney movies with villains in it. I remember looking up on the computer to see if uh, anybody's ever taken over the world like the movies back in the day and that's what brought up the Illuminati and, and took me down the rabbit hole and that's why my family thinks I'm crazy.
Thanks for listening to the show and be sure to sign up for the telegram and leave us a voice message telling everyone why your family thinks you're crazy. Be sure to tell us your name and also let us know where you're from. Peace. Enjoy this episode. Well, we're here, Ron. We're in the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy extended outro. People have heard you on the show multiple times. So, yeah, we're live. We're here in the extended intro. And you have a spirit animal name. I don't know if you realized it yet, Ron. Did you? Did you? You did. Yes. You you learned about your spirit animal name. We're here with the cosmic egg, folks. Not just any cosmic egg. The celestial cosmic egg. Or no, the illuminated egg. The illuminated egg. The illuminated egg. <laughs> the egg of I love it. Yes. And we have we have a new patron that just joined, so I gotta get I gotta get the deck out and we'll give him a spirit animal name right here, live. Ron, you can see how the magic happens. Alright. Hope this is an exciting one. <clears throat> Some people were disappointed with their spirit animal name, and I had to go back and give them another one. Shout out to you. They should stick with the one. <laughs> well, yes, that's the new rule. No more, uh, no more take backs or, or however it goes. But we're we're giving out these spiritual animal names, and I just want people to know it's just it's just your identity on the Patreon. It's not. It doesn't say anything about your actual spirit animal. If it if it resonates with you in that way, that's a plus. That's a bonus. But just consider this a cool nickname for you to use in the Telegram chat. Because, you know, some people, they're not as creative as me. And, and they don't put Mystic Mark at the beginning of their name and, and use that as their username. So... Maybe this will be your new username. I saw a username today that was literally creative username 78. So <laughs> shout out to you. Thank you for joining our Telegram chat. But maybe this person, if they join the Patreon, could have a cool new spirit animal name. So here we go. This is how it happens. That's not the right card. Boom. We got the War Bonnet card, which symbolizes advancement. And we got the Firefly card. So you are newest patron. Let me get their name. Hold on a second. I just had it. Where did it go? They are. Their name is. Oh, I just said it before. Thomas. Shout out to you, Thomas. Thank you for joining. You are the War Firefly. Or the Firefly of War. Take your pick. Oh, I like that one. Right? That's see, you know, it's it's people hear Firefly and they're like, oh man, but when you find out you're the Firefly of War, then it's kind of a badass name. So people shouldn't be so upset if they don't like their spirit animal name because they're one of a kind, folks. Ron just saw it. It's a unique process. There's two decks that go into this. If you want to do it yourself, you're gonna have to go out and buy those two tarot decks, that's not an easy thing to do, okay? One of these came from a used bookstore, so good luck with that, all right? The other one is much more easily available. But anyways, Ron, how have you been? I'm good. Let me give you the take on my spirit animal. <laughs> okay. My Patreon, my family thinks I'm creating the Patreon spirit name, is the Illuminated Egg, or sometimes you call it the Cosmic Egg. 
I like the illuminated egg, and I'll tell you why. Tell me. Inside the egg symbolizes to me the beginning of the rebirth, and it's the illuminated egg. So I'm already illuminated because I've been reincarnated from my past life, and the egg represents my new life where I'm coming in more illuminated or more enlightened. And and as that egg hatches and I grow and evolve as a person, and if that doesn't happen, well, then you just get put in a fire pan to get eaten. <laughs> Life's tough. So you got to stay on the right path. All right. I love it. See, this is the moral to the story that a spirit animal name could help you find. I love that. Thank you, Ron. And maybe... The war firefly, the firefly of war, our new friend Thomas, welcome to the family. Maybe he'll have some cool message about his spirit animal name too, or maybe not. But we've gotten a lot of inbox messages. Let's check the pod inbox, Ron. I'm not going to be using the pod inbox anymore. It was a complete and utter waste of money because the whole time I could have been getting voice messages from the telegram for free. So that was a blunder on my, on my part, no fault of pod inbox. They run a great service. I just do not need their service for $9 a month. It kind of uh, <laughs> was a, a big waste of money for four months. I think I got like 10 audio messages total from the audience, which is cool. I appreciate everybody who left us a message, but you know, 40 50 bucks for 10 audio messages when i could have got all of those for free on telegram is just ridiculous right so you know you know mark some of these platforms that we're getting uh, involved in a lot heavier you know like the telegram group chat and and also on discord i mean th these have technologies that we can utilize for free i mean and not to sound like a frugal new Englander that i am and i know that you are I mean, in this business, we have to be, right? We're not making a ton of money doing this. And in my case, I'm not making any money doing this. But but yeah, so so when you can get on these different platforms and utilize the tools that they offer, I mean, that's great. I mean, like you say, nothing against pod, what is it, pod inbox? Yep. Yeah, nothing against them. But I mean, it's like, you know, a lot of these companies, like it's a really great idea when they come out, but it, the technology evolves so quickly now that, you know, what they had is a great idea that came out as a money-making thing or whatever, you know, within six months or a year could actually be totally defunct. Well, and, and again, I'm not singling them out. I'm just saying in general. No. And with technology, you know, there's, there's no patent on the actual method itself. So yeah, they just, they put out a good idea and make some money, but then telegram goes and says, Hey, that'd be cool if people could give voice messages in our chats and then that solves that problem for me because everybody's already in the telegram chat anyways but we did get a cool message from someone that you know as well let's hear that message hi i'm janet deplorable janet my family thinks i'm crazy because i like to live my life okay ron can't hear that one <laughs> let me let me go over to my phone uh because if i play it on my phone you'll be able to hear it but that was that was Janet for those who did hear it because the recording I think picked that up. But deplorable Janet left us a um, left us a message, and I just found out recently from a friend that she used to be a uh, co-host on the, the No Mercy podcast. I, yes, I did yeah. not know that. Yeah. That's very yeah. Cool. Way back, way back she was. Yeah, I love I love Janet. She's awesome. 
Yeah, she's very nice. I had no idea until just recently that that was the case. But you find out the, all these things. I actually have met Tommy in New Jersey, and he's very inconspicuous person i you know people were like oh that's tommy g and i'm like okay <laughs> i shook his hand i'm like hey what's up <laughs> you know but it's interesting when people are like well known you know and then you're like oh you're just a regular person like sam actually like has the energy of somebody who's like famous or well known whereas some people like tommy g they just you know just come off as like a normal dude in person I mean, Mark, that's all we really are. We're just normal dudes. True. You know, we all have a following. I mean, there's a lot of my listeners that that didn't know me from the dangerous world, you know? And I mean, and then I have a lot of listeners like, oh, I, I heard you first discovered you on the dangerous world. So and not that I was a, a member of the show, but I was a recurring guest and, and Ryan with Ryan and Brandon and, and with Ryan now that Brandon's no longer on the show, uh, which I kind of miss. Actually, I kind of miss Brandon not being on the show. But but yeah, so people will recognize you from one show or picked up a lot of listeners from being on with Joe, Jen and Bennett, legit that same thing. That's just how this works. And being on your show. So, I mean, I had between between all these shows before I started my own, I probably made 50 appearances. And that's the that's the cool thing about it. It's like we resonate with each other. So I have you on my show and then it turns out people in the audience resonate with you. So they go check out your show. I hope people do that for Janet's show, The Deplorable Nation. But let's play the clip. Maybe you'll be able to hear it this time. Hi, I'm Janet. Deplorable Janet. My family thinks I'm crazy because I like to live my life through love and happiness and not focus on the negative or the hate or the bad or the destruction that's going on around me. I choose to bring light and happiness to all situations and teach and heal through love and empowerment and a positive message. And my family does not like that. Look at yeah, that. that's awesome. Now that's awesome. You know, wouldn't you agree that we all kind of got to follow Janet's lead on that? Like, like people need to get rid of the negativity because I know me and just a little bit of negativity around me. It just, it's like a vampire. It just tries to suck me dry. And I, and I fight it. I have to fight it. I had this conversation with my wife this morning, like every morning she gets up and it's like some dilemma. And I told her this morning, I'm like, you know what? You really got to stop starting your day out with negativity. And it's because I absorb your negativity and I don't like to start my day out with negativity, and especially when my coffee is still brewing and I haven't had any yet. Uh, Cause I need, I, I'm one of those guys. I got to have my coffee in the morning. Like, like, have you seen the memes? Like, like don't and it shows this frazzled cat like don't talk to me until i've had my coffee yeah and that's it's me i don't know 100 i don't know what i did uh good but tara made me coffee this morning so i'm very uh grateful this morning nice. that uh, we we got off on a good good start because that happens with me a lot where i'm i wake up on the the wrong side of the bed so to speak and and yeah until i like i don't know smoke a little bit and drink a coffee i usually am on edge so <laughs> the worst is when i get right in the car and you know i don't take take a moment to relax because i used to do that for work i used to wake up boom get dressed get right in my car warm it up you know and while it's warming up roll like a, a blunt up or something and then you know drive off to work and and for some jobs, I would have like a 30, 40 minute 
drive before I even got to the the place at like four or five in the morning. So yeah, (laughs) now having this job, it's very much a relief, but at the same time, the, all those same stresses are still, they're still here. They're just in different, they just appear in different ways. And, and it's easier to take those on when you're sitting in your desk, uh, at your desk at home rather than, you know, in a work van in the, you know, 30 below, but you know, yeah, that's, that's I, it is what it is. Mark, I always said like the first 20 minutes or half hour of your day is going to set the set the mood and set mm. the pace for the whole day. Right. So if you start your day out on a negative note or so you just got to, you really have to work hard to fight that because you don't want it to destroy the rest of your day. Mm. Yeah. That's a good point. I, I That's why I really liked my bakery delivery job because I would start the day, you know, sometimes I didn't have enough sleep, but I would start the day productive and, and you know, get out of work like at 10 in the morning. And, you know, now I wake up at 10 in the morning. So I used to like start my day so early that once I got out of work, I had my whole day ahead of me and I was very productive in that time period. I I will say, I don't know if I'm going to go back to something like that. I might have to, if people don't help us out on the Patreon, but, but it helps when we're part of this community. Cause like you said, you've had a lot of folks turn around to, to your show after being on all these other shows. Same thing has happened to me, especially with, you know, a show like Tinfoil Hat or the Union of the Unwanted, which I'm grateful to be on. But shout out to our friend, Joe. He left us a message. Hey, Mark, this is Joe from Legit Bat Podcast. Just wanted to drop a quick note and say hi and we love you. Much love from all of us at Legit Bat. See you soon. Thank you, Joe. To be honest, I asked Joe, I asked everybody to tell us why their family thinks they're crazy, but Joe's family doesn't think he's crazy. Joe's living, you know, pretty solid over there. His wife is on board. His brother's almost on board. And I don't, I'm not sure if they have kids or not yet, but uh, I'm sure they'll be on board one day too. (laughs) Joe and Jen have kids. Okay. So yeah. Very cool. I don't, I don't know what the demographic of it is. If it, the kids are Joe's or if the kids are Jen's or if there's a combination of both, but, but yeah, no, they got little ones in the house for sure. Right on. But you know, they're, they're, they're great people. They're awesome people. Th- that's the cool thing that I've learned about through this meeting. So many interesting people through the podcast is not everybody comes to this sub completely at odds with their family. Like some people like our friend, Rob B., their family's all on board with with conspiracies, you know, like it's it's very interesting to see that because for my whole life, I just assumed that it was so fringe that like only weirdos like me talked about it. And now I find out there's whole families of, of people that are talking about these things. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think I think maybe sometimes it's different for different people, whatever your your what's the word I'm looking for, whatever your uh, position is in your family. Sure. Like in my family, I've you know, since my dad passed away, I became the patriarch of our family. You know, I'm the oldest son. I do have older sisters and everything. They're not really involved with the family. But uh, so so as far as, you know, whether my family thinks I'm crazy, I think I think they all know that for me to have my position in my family and it means something to be the patriarch in my family i'm responsible for a lot of things and a lot of people right so i'm I'm the go-to guy that when something needs to you know when there's a problem an issue or we have a tragedy which we've had in our family you know uh, everybody looks to me for the strength and i and i'm there for that so but i mean you know people in my family know that i'm certainly crazy 
because you have to be crazy to be the patriarch of this family. <laughs> well, that's a, that's a whole nother angle. And this is what I'm talking about. There's so many different uh, angles and, and walks of life that bring people to this perspective that is still not completely homogenous. You know, there's so many unique perspectives within this community that we're a part of, but you know, we're wrapping up. I mean, this is one of the last days of 2021 here. I don't know. I don't think this episode is going to come out in 2021. It'll probably be out in 2022. But what are your thoughts on, on this year, Ron? I mean, it's been a, been a wild, wild year. I'm sure we'll get into it in more detail on uh, tonight's show on Legit Bat. But, but yeah, I, I feel like there's a, a real truth to the experience that I know I've had, I've heard other people have had this same experience of melding 2020 and 2021 into the Just same sure. year. Like you, yeah. I even yeah. did it in this conversation, not when we were recording, but earlier you mentioned something happening in November and I'm like, geez, this has gone on for a long time because uh, it, it feels like, you know, that's when we met last November. And I'm just like, then I put it together. I'm like, no, he's talking about this past November. That was only a month ago, you dummy, you know, <laughs> for a second, yeah. I, I was thinking of 2020 November. And it's just, it's weird how, how the two years have blended together. It's really is a new world. I, I think there's something to that. Yeah, you know, 2020 and 2021 is all molded together. That's like one year. And now looking back as we're at the end, I mean, what today's uh, December 30th, right? While we're recording this. And you look back and it's like a lot, so much has happened, but it seems to me, of course, other people might like, think differently, but the last couple of years have just been a big blur. And, and, I, and I think 2020 was when we were first getting into this whole situation. We were starting to learn. We were slowly learning what was going on. I was starting to get into it. Then I made my appearance, my first appearance on Dangerous World, which was, I want to say, in June or July of 2020. And then, of course, we've just kind of taken it from there and ran with it. So, People that, that do what we do, that try to get the message out there, and not just that, you know, we talk about other things, but we're paying attention to what's going on out there in the world, and we're getting thrown, we're getting so much information thrown at us, and we have to process that all, and, and that takes time, but when you think about everything that's happened in the last two years, it's just been really crazy out there, and, and, and it's like, now that we're going into 2022, like, I don't think there's going to be a switch that turns that all off. Something that I've been talking about is that the narrative is unraveling. It is slowly unraveling. And I think it's going to come to a point, and we're going to talk more about it on the show tonight, but to, for, you know, going forward for 2022. But yeah, I, I agree with you 100%. 2020 and 2021, to me, that's one year. I mean, that's all blended in. Because when we talk about, oh yeah, when this is back in you know August, or what, okay, was it August of 2020 or August of 2021? Because it's all the same to us, because it's just... Right. All molded together, you know, and, and I don't know, you know, people our age, you know, we didn't experience, you know, like World War II and, and all the craziness that happened back then. And I'm just using that as an example because, you know, the United States has been at a state of war for, you know, 20 years, but it's, but it's different than it would have been for people like during World War II. And they think back, okay, there's five years and where did it go? Like, that's how I look at the last couple of years. Where did, where did that time go? Because you think back now, and I have to, I have to kind of pay attention because I asked myself, was that 2020? Or was that 2021? And even on the show, I still call it 2020. 
So, I mean, you know, we just got to get used to that. We're going into 2022 and, you know, we don't know for sure what 2022 is going to bring, but let's hope to bring something better than what we've had. But, but 2021 was a big year for all of us podcasters because that's all when we hunkered down, we got busy and we got out there getting the information out to people. Uh, and that's made time fly as well. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, for speaking for our community, I think a lot of us really came into our own in this past year and found our audiences. And, and it was a very uh, perfect time for that because so many people were being pushed to the brink of like, what the hell is going on in this world that they sought out answers uh, in alternative places like the places that we provided with our fantastic podcast i mean a round of applause for what you've been doing on the wicked planet podcast and the fact that you're on the glitch in the code is awesome i'm really happy to see that and i feel like my show every time i talk to people they always tell me oh you put out so many episodes and all that stuff and i feel like i haven't put out enough uh, to be honest and i'm also i'm really looking forward to putting something together. I'm inspired by Isaac Weisop and this book I bought by him. It's titled Conspiracy Theories and Unpopular Culture, just like his podcast. Yeah, it's like his show. Yeah. Right. It's like five or six, seven chapters. And each chapter is a somewhat separate topic, but it's a topic that he's covered multiple times on his show. And he takes, you know, whatever research that he put out on the show and compiles it into a neat little chapter. And I, whether, you know, people buy them or not, I just want to do that. Like, I don't really care whether people like buy the book, but I feel like there are certain subjects and topics that I've been fascinated in that I don't feel like I've seen someone cover. I've seen people cover tangents that come across this subject. I've seen people kind of maybe touch on the subject, but haven't done many, you know, I just, I want to take certain subjects and, and give my own take, I guess is, is all I'm saying. So yeah. that's, that's my plan yeah. for 2022 is, is to publish a couple books. I already have one pretty much done, like as far as planned out and written. So we'll see where that goes, but that's, that's, that's a project that I'm doing with Sam. So. Oh yeah, and I'd be interested to see what you have. Like, like Isaac has a very interesting perspective on a lot of these things. And, and you know, and, and I see some people they really beat up on him, and it's like, you know, I, I I think these people are like like not taking the proper perspective on it, right? But he, I'd like to get hooked up with him at some point. I'd like to have a little discussion with him, but but I like his work. He gets in depth. And and I'd be interested to see in the, that book, Mark. I'll have to check that out. Hey, let me tell you a funny story about books, right? Like like in my house, like I'm the conspiracy guy in my house, and everybody, like my wife or whatever, like they don't they don't say that it's a joke or or they'll kind of like give me a little joke about it or whatever, like to give me a hard time. And when our friends get together, we're gonna have a bunch of friends over tomorrow night, and and I try not to talk about my conspiracy business or whatever you you want to call it, or the show in front of my friends because a lot of people uh, in my circle of friends that are you know not in tune to the kind of the things I talk about. But when I was shopping for my niece because she's a big book reader. Uh, and she's also into the conspiracy. She's going to be coming on the show and talking about some SpongeBob and some Simpsons uh, conspiracies. And uh, so, so I was in there shopping for her. And then, of course, I walk by and I see, oh, that book looks interesting. 
Ooh, that book looks interesting. I ended up spending like 60 bucks on books for myself. And, uh, and, and I brought them home and, and I, I gift wrapped them and I put them under the tree. And my wife's like, what are, what are these? Who are these from? I said, well, they must be from Santa. She goes, these are books. You bought yourself books and you wrap them and you put them under the tree to give to yourself. I said, well, I didn't see, I didn't, I didn't see you down there buying me any conspiracy books. So anyway, it's just a little funny story, a little Christmas story. Well, let us did I. So I wrapped up my own books and I gave them to myself for Christmas. Well, let's let's share because I, I got some books for myself too. I was a good little boy this year and my mommy gave me a, a Barnes and Noble gift card. So I didn't Ooh, buy I didn't buy myself books, but but yeah, I, I definitely shout out to my mom. I love her. But I got the occult book by John Michael Greer. It's like it's it's all it's interesting. Here, I'm gonna grab it and show you because it's it's worth it's worth uh, showing visual, but while I'm doing that, tell us what books you got. Any titles? Do you remember? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So so I bought some books that are in tune to kind of like some of the shows that I want to cover, some of the subjects I'm going to be covering. So I bought one book. It was uh, Psychopaths and Murderers, and it kind of it gives in-depth analysis to the to the people, the serial killers or whatever. So I, So I call that my Psychopath Serial Killer book that i bought i bought a book on jack the ripper which uh it it gives accounts of some of the witnesses and some of the people that lived in the victorian times uh, during the time of jack the ripper and kind of their take on you know what they perceived when they were you know seeing this happen or 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 watching not watching it on the news but you know reading about it in the newspaper and that kind of covers a a, a series that we're going to be doing coming up so so i bought that for more for research uh, than anything, because I have a really cool uh, series coming up that I'm not going to talk about, but it has to do with serial killers. You know, some of us guys in the, our podcasting community, which I just want to say, shout out to All Media United. Our podcast community has grown huge in the last year, so 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 kudos to you for that. So I bought a book on uh, psychic detectives which I think is going to be super interesting. You know, it's going to go back to uh, yeah, Looking Glass and some of the, uh, not MK Ultra, but the, what was the uh, remote viewing? The remote viewing and, 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 and then also how some police forces and detectives use psychics to help solve uh, murders and other crimes. So I think that's going to be real interesting. And, and I, you know, bought some, uh, I bought a book uh, like the diary, not the diary, but the Encyclopedia of Conspiracy Theories. Now, so these are all just kind of research research books for me, but I'm really looking forward to going through them. And, then, and they're not books like that you have to read from front to back. You can just kind of cherry pick out the stories that you that you want to that you want to read and talk about. Right. But because uh, we're going to be getting into some deeper subjects going forward with the show, so I have to do my homework to make that happen. I like my I like my listeners to be happy, you know, and also to gain more listeners. And I and my listeners respond really well to the strange stuff. So. So that's kind of the goal for 2022 for me and the show, The Wicked Planet. Yeah, yeah. I had uh, I had Chaz of the Dead on the show. He was really he got we got into some really strange stuff that I know you. I'm pretty sure you've spoken with Chaz before. Um, oh yeah, and times I yeah. have him on the show. I've read that book, by the way. Isn't this a great book? I love it. Yeah, it's very cool. It's and very cool. Uh, I've got to read it again. What's cool about it for me personally is I've been reading this book, Empire of the Wheel by Walter Bosley. And Walter talks a lot about these breakaway civilizations, which 
when I read, uh, and I haven't finished it yet, but when I started reading Chaz's book, I'm like, oh, these friendship people sound just like a breakaway civilization, maybe minus. It's exactly, it's exactly what they are. Right. So yeah. don't, don't spoil it because I'm only, I think I'm on chapter eight of Chaz's book. And I'm like halfway through this book, if you could see, I'm exactly halfway through this 500-page book. So I'm I'm rocking it. I'm, I don't know what got into me in the past month, but I've been reading a lot where's of books. The, where's the book that your mom got you, the occult book? Oh, so so she didn't buy it. She got me a gift card, all right? Oh, okay. Because <laughs> she, wouldn't, she wouldn't know which books to get. So, no, uh, I got you. She, she paid for it, so she bought it. She paid for it. <clears throat> so I got this book by John Michael Greer. Very cool book. That is and cool. And the reason why I got it, to be honest, was because when we showed up at Barnes & Noble, they were having a 50% off sale on hardcovers only, every hardcover in the store, which was which was cool because hardcovers are more expensive. But I also like noticed in that moment that not a lot of the books I was interested in were hardcover, unfortunately. So I had to kind of like dig around and find this book, which I was happy to find because I like John Michael Greer. And this book is not your traditional history of the occult. I mean, he touches on a lot of different, I mean, here, I'll just show you kind of like. Oh, it has, a, it has a lot of graphics in it too. I like that. Yeah, each each page is, or each, you know, every time you flip a page, it's an image and a, a paragraph, you know, or text. So, That's cool. So yeah, it, cool. it's very visual and they touch on a couple interesting things that I haven't seen in other books, which is always a good indicator. Then I got this book, which is translated by John Michael Greer. It's one of the better translations of this book by Eliphas Levy, who he's come up a couple times in recent conversations on the podcast. So I'm like, you know, I should have this book. It's He's a Frenchman, correct? Yeah, Eliphas Levi was a big inspiration yeah. for Aleister Crowley, actually. And then Tara, who you're familiar with, my lovely girlfriend got me some books from the used bookstore i imagine i don't know yeah it was a used bookstore because she gave me the receipt great place to find odd books indeed it's check these out yeah so she got cahokia city of the sun very interesting got another one that i don't know where it went i think she has it in her area of the room because i can't find it over here but then michelangelo which doesn't have a cover but it's Interesting. And then Leonardo da Vinci, a book about all of his uh, human body. It's a big, heavy book, a book all about his sketches. Yeah. Okay. So I have a huge book on da Vinci. I am fascinated with da Vinci and I'd actually like to do a series of shows about him as well. I'm interested in the, the parts about the heart, particularly, which is funny. I just opened to that because I've I don't remember what podcast I was listening to. It might have been Mysterious Universe, but they were talking about how the heart does not function the way we're told in science. It's not a pump. You know, it's it's happening. What's happening is like an electromagnetic, you know, possibly uh, zero gravity. Like, you know, there are keys to alternative energy, according to this one source that I can't remember who. Uh, I was listening to, but if it was Mysterious Universe and they were just talking about an author, so that's probably more likely. I I don't know. It's not that important. But the the point is, is the heart might reveal secrets about alternative energy sources. Have you heard anything like that? Oh, absolutely. 
Yeah. Yeah. You know, our, our bodies carry, I forget how many uh, amps or how many volts of electricity. Uh, so we are electric beings. And that's why I like, not to get off topic, but, but when you talk about the electric, uh, the electric field, the electric universe and, and how that interplays with water and, and how your water should be live water when you drink it because your body needs that that all has to do with the electricity that's within our body and how and how the heart is actually the big player in that it's not your brain it's not just your brain it's your heart right and that's why they say you died of a broken heart well that's true because that all comes from your heart mm. right it translates from your heart to your brain instead of the other way around that's just my theory on it hey you know i just wanted to say something like I think the listeners, like, they need to understand, or they don't have to understand, but how much work we put into just doing the research. Look at the books you have. You should see, I don't know if you can see back in my bookcases behind me, but I have, but, you know, books and books and books and books, and everybody will come in and they'll say, oh, do you read all those books? Yeah, I read all those books. Yeah, where do you think all this stuff comes out of this brain? You know, you have an, you have an idea. And then you go and you and you find a book that's about that subject, and that's where uh, used bookstores come in real handy. It is actually a lot of used book outlets online that you can find too. That you can find books that they're just they're just not out; they're out of print. But we spend a lot of time reading, like in between doing our real jobs and helping with our family and doing our chores. Like we try to find that little bit of time when we can like get absorbed into a subject and read a book. And, and books are fascinating. Everybody said books are dead. Books are not dead, as far as I'm concerned. Maybe for the regular Joe, they're dead, but more people need to get back into the actual art of reading a book uh, to learn to learn more about life than other than you know. Let's watch a 20 minute segment on uh, YouTube and oh, now I'm now I'm an expert in the field. You know, not the case. You can spend literally years learning about a subject like me and the Nazis. You know. Like I was thinking about this the other day, like we, we talk about so many different subjects and so many in so many different genres. I said, what I really think I'm going to do is I'm going to concentrate with my one genre being the history of the Nazis, the history of their mindset, which which also goes with the little octopus tentacles off into occultism, off into the banking system, off into the new world order, the world economic forum, the great reset. This is all based on Nazi principles. And this is why I would like to stay in that genre and learn more. Like, I think I know a lot about the Nazis now. And then I start reading more. I don't know as much as I think I do. And, and, and I'm not afraid to admit that. So so I need to learn more and more and more. Hey, since you're share, sharing books, let me show you one that I keep right here. It's, I, I found it a long time ago. Let me hold up. I got to reach over and grab oh, it. Ron, why aren't you sitting at that much nicer, bigger desk behind you? That's that... That desk is beautiful. Uh, because I have my computer set up on my little desk. That's the desk I sit at when I have to. When you have important meetings. When I have to fix problems. Uh, okay, oh. so, <laughs> do you see that? Yes. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Hitler suppressed and still secret weapons, science, and technology. Mm. This book is amazing. And I don't even know if you can even find this book anymore. But this is just like. So much stuff on German technology and Nazi technology. That, uh, that's a lot of what Walter is touching on. Not quite yet at the part I'm in in the book, but from what I've gathered from listening to his interview, it seems like the Germans were 
big part of this airship breakaway civilization that he's discussing. I think I brought this up on a show we were on earlier. I don't know, or maybe just on a phone call with you. But the idea that Walter proposed that like in the same trajectory that we see the Model T evolve into a Ferrari or a Lamborghini, you can take that same technological evolution and apply it to the airships of the 1850s to the Roswell flying saucers of the 1950s. It's the same time, you know, 100 years. And look at how much progress we see with cars over that 100-year period. Why wouldn't it be true for airships, right? Yeah. Yeah, no, it's exactly true. And again, it all goes back to what we talked about earlier. Everything evolves so quickly now. And and even though it is evolving, I think it's just repurposed old technology that was there to begin with. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, I, I, you know, I, you know, I mess with cars like, you know, that's what I do for a living. Right. So I've seen the difference in cars since I started working on cars back in the 60s when I was a kid. Yeah, mm. uh, cars and motorcycles and dirt bikes and snowmobiles and all that stuff. Right. Uh, like you take like I just recently bought myself a car. I don't spend a lot of money on myself for cars, but I had an opportunity to buy a car that I really wanted. I've always really wanted one. I found one. It's a little beat up, but I can fix that. And this car has zero technology in it. This car was made by General Motors. It's a, and I'll tell everybody what it is. It's a 96 Impala SS. It's a great big sedan that's built on the police, the police uh, pursuit car chassis. It has the LT1, which LT1 V8 motor in it, which is a no frills motor. It's a push rod motor. It's uh, it is fuel injection, but it was made to go fast. That was its only purpose and and this car has yeah it has power windows it has a cd player has air conditioning stuff like that but it has no electronics it has none of that now you take that car and you go up to my recent car which was a cadillac and that had all kinds of technology in it right but then you get into my truck that my wife drives or i should say our truck or her truck that thing's like sitting in an airship or like sitting in the cockpit of a 747. There's so much going on. You got touch screens. You got screen coming up in front of you. You got all these switches and toggles everywhere that does all kind of, the whole roof opens up. I mean, just just the evolution in cars in the last 20 years has been totally, like not even 20 years, has been totally insane. So who's to say that air flying technology couldn't change over 100 years? Right. I mean, we know about dirigibles. You know, when you're talking about airships, you're talking dirigibles. We're talking hot air balloons. Dirigibles, are, for people that don't know, that's like what the Hindenburg was, was a dirigible, right? So, so yeah, I think air travel was around a lot longer. You know, they say that the Montgolfier brothers from France is who invented the hot air balloon. You know, is that true? Yeah, yeah, that probably is true. But look at how far that's evolved. I mean, hot air balloon technology is about the same now as it was you know, hundred years ago, but I mean, who's to say that there wasn't some type of advanced airships like, like before that? Well, and there's stories, I don't know how fantastical this is, but cause I don't remember the source, but there are stories I remember reading. I think, no, it's, I think it's from like the Mongols, what they ta- talked about the Mongols having basically hot air balloons that they made from elephant skins. I don't know if that's where that comes from. So maybe that's not a real source, but 
So I, I would think that, would that surprise you though? Because no. the Mongols and the Huns, Attila the Hun, like their armies were massive, and they used they had technology. Yeah. Even the early even the early Islamic armies like Salahadin, you know his technology and his weaponry and things like that. They had the towers, the towers with the catapults on them, right? And things like I mean that was advanced technology for that day. Right. You know, you know, and I mean, these are just kind of people sitting back and coming up with these ideas or was this ideas that they discovered, like from some ancient history, even going back 2000 years. Right. Because you're talking you're talking early Christianity, you know, in, th in those times or even before Christianity, when the Huns and, you know, the Mongols and, and, and those warring tribes were around, they had technology. They had technology. And this is why they were so strong and so big. Same thing goes with the Romans. You know, the whole, the, the whole way that the Romans designed to fight, you know, is still, they still teach that shit at West Point, right? Today, like they still teach that stuff. Right. So. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I remember. Old technology, Mark, old technology is just old technology. But new technology is also old technology. Yeah. No, you can't reinvent the wheel. You can only repurpose it. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I love it, man. I think. I think there's so much, uh, so much stuff I've been getting into lately, and I've been talking so much about this one author in particular that I, I'm excited to say now I'm gonna have him on the show soon. We haven't, I haven't reached out to him yet, but I have his email, so fingers crossed we'll get him on the show. He seems like he's uh, open to doing a bunch of shows, so it shouldn't be a problem. But yeah, I'm excited to talk to Walter. Unfortunately, we got to reschedule with Gareth. Still no, uh, still no response from him. I emailed him around 11 and said, hey, you're going to reschedule or what? What's going on here? So we'll see what happens, but yeah, fun talking really yeah, as usual. They're really busy guys over there, Mark. Something probably came up. No big but, deal. Uh, yeah, you'll get him back on the show, and I definitely want to be part of that when you have him on the show. Yeah, yeah, will do. Thanks for joining me. Kind of meandered all over the place, but I want to give you an opportunity to tell the listeners where they can find you in 2022. Like you said, Alt Media United, you're part of that crew. So let the listeners know where they can find your show. Well, we're on the Wicked Planet podcasts on all your major podcast platforms uh, Spotify, Apple, Google, Podcast, Castros. I mean, I mean, Podbean, we could just go on and on and on. It's on. And that's thanks to you, Mark. And, uh, you know, uh, we're thinking, you know, if, if we move from Anchor, we might be going to something different to get us out there to a broader audience. Uh, but Spotify is really good. I want to say 55% of our listenership uh, listens to us on Spotify. So, uh, so that's where you can find us. Just look us up, the Wicked Planet Podcast. Please hit the follow and subscribe button. Turn on your notifications so when uh, the new episode comes out, which generally is going to be either a Wednesday late or a Thursday is when our shows come out. But going into 2022, uh, we're going to be doing a lot of, we're going to be probably doing a fair amount of one-on-one -on -one shows with a lot of guests that I've been asked us to be a, a guest on a lot of very, very good podcasts. Looking forward to doing that. And as always, great conversation with you, Mark. Thanks for inviting me on for, for a little chat here. Our show didn't go as planned today, but that's okay. Well, we'll uh, these things happen in the podcasting world, you know, but that's okay. We give uh, we give everybody a, a little bit of something to listen to, and we're going to all be getting together tonight. So, yeah. so I'll be seeing you. I'll be seeing you a little bit later. Right so people need, to, 
people need to keep an eye on Legit Bat for when that episode's going to be coming out. Oh, yeah, that'll be out by the time this comes out. And that's the cool thing about doing these extended outros now is that when something like this happens or we have an opportunity to talk, jump on the show, you know, and it's a little bit more informal. And oh, there was one other thing, Mark. Sorry to interrupt you. Uh, come and follow me on Instagram, Ron from New England. And the Wicked Planet podcast, two different pages. I kind of do the same thing on both, but just come and give me a follow. Uh, I like try to get those numbers up a little bit too. And and uh, and if you follow me on Instagram, you'll get a heads up of when this, the new episodes are out and kind of a base of what that's going to be on. And I also give a heads up of when I'm going to be on another show as well. So you can kind of follow me what's going on. Feel free to DM me. I answer all my DMs. It might take me a day or two to do that. And, and also uh, my listeners or your listeners, if they have any questions, they can just email me at the Wicked Planet Podcast at gmail.com. Send me what you got. I try to respond to anything and everything. Beautiful. All right. Well, thank you for joining us here, Ron. And thank you for listening, folks out there. Hope you enjoyed this wonderful conversation with Matt from the Great Deception Podcast. And of course, this one with my friend Ron from the Wicked Planet Podcast. Enjoy the moment wherever you are in the ever-expanding now. What does innovation sound like? It sounds like the luxury of being in the moment with your customer, client, or patient. It sounds like having the right information right when you need it. It sounds like being at your best for your customers and your business. Thanks to Highland's intelligent content solutions that improve digital processes, innovators everywhere are able to do their thing better, whatever that thing is. Now, who doesn't like the sound of that? Highland. For innovators everywhere, visit highland.com.